Welcome to Back in Tunes. Oh, what's that? It's a crossover with Video Night, our other podcast. It's your animation archaeologist, Michael and Jacob. Jacob, say hello to the folks. <laughs> oh, hey, hey, get down. Down, <laughs> down, Sir Didymus. Down, please. Thank you. Relax. Come on. Hey, what did I tell you? I know you're excited to do this podcast, too. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know, dude. High five, though. You're still in control. You didn't break anything. All right. Sorry about that. I thought I'd bring my little friend, monkey friend, uh, Didymus. Didymus? You know, just, yeah, I, okay, I, yeah, I, he liked the name. I named him after the Labyrinth character, yes. Okay. I thought it was cool, right, Didymus? <laughs> he nods. He nods and agrees. All right, everybody, if you can't tell what's going on, why is this a video night back in Toons crossover? That's because we're going to discuss the Planet of the Apes franchise, POTA, to fans of uh, the franchise. Um so we're going to discuss every single entry of the movie, and we'll discuss the animated series, maybe talk some a little bit about the comic books and what else. But uh, right now, it's time to get get your damn dirty ears on this podcast. Wow. He always does this thing, and there's this thing that he does in the first movie. He like takes this gasp, and he goes, Ugh. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Ugh, uh, fresh like, air, like, but like... I also peed in my pants. Uh, I just finished touching myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, Dunamis is like laughing about that. Oh, 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 You're oh. not the only one who flings his goo as man goo. <laughs> I've been on this big yeah, ship forever. The only woman has died. <laughs> uh. All I've got is my left hand. My cold, dead <laughs> left hand. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Okay. All right, let's Honestly. start discussing the series. So yes, let's, go ahead. Now, uh, when did you discover Planet of the Apes? Oh gosh, yeah, no, I was I was very I was young. I was a little kid. It was always on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, my parents would uh, we'd watch it. We would like start with the original one. I think the first time I saw it, it was like about halfway through the movie. Charl- you know, Charlton Heston's running away, and then all of a sudden they capture him, and then he says, "Get your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape!" Get your and, paws oh, like, off me, you damn dirty apes! <laughs> That's the worst impression ever. That's how I interpret it. <laughs> Get your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty apes! He's got his face in that net at the time. I'm doing a mannequin yeah. against the wall. <laughs> Practically. Oh, gosh. Anyway, we both sucked at it. But, yeah, no, I'm watching that. And, you know, I'm like a kid. I thought it was kind of funny the way he said it. Because, you know, as a kid, the way, if you say something weirdly or ridiculous, I'm going to laugh. So... That was like the first time I actually discovered it and started watching some of the other movies. I remember seeing one in particular where the apes actually like broke out of their little prison and took over uh, society. Yeah, and that's and civilization. That's really, like, intrigued you? Yeah, I was like, holy shit, this got some, this got deep. Especially the confrontation between him and, oh gosh, I can't remember the actor's name. Regarding, you know. Are we talking the, the you final know, chapter? Was the one from BJ and the Bear? What the hell's his name? Um, 
forget it, I can't remember. It's Conquest. No, oh. it's, is it Conquest? No, it's um Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Yes, that's what it was. I think that's what it was. Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, that's one of the lower end ones. Um, for me, it was, I knew of its existence. I knew the comics were around. And I didn't know about the cartoon or the regular series. But um, I knew the movies, you know, everybody talked about them. But it just seemed old to me, seemed low budget. Pretty much anything before Star Wars, I would not even watch. And um, it wasn't until the remake was coming around. I went to my local video store and they had 50 cent, you know, old VHS rentals. You know, you could go and pick those up. And so I picked up the whole series. But that first one is just absolutely captured my imagination. I became obsessed with Planet of the Apes. And to the point where I've named more than a couple emails and I have a online tag, Kung Fu Monkey Bot, based solely on some weird, absurd sidetrack from Planet of the Apes. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Claude Akins. Claude Akins is in the one in Battle for the Planet of the Apes. He's a villain. Um, oh, yes. Cool. Uh, so that, yes. it just like, it full force, I had to watch all of them. I became obsessed with the TV show, which I think is far superior than to anything uh, else in the sci-fi world in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, gosh, yeah. Realizing now, for me, after, you know, how you experienced it and then me experience, uh, my experience, you know, growing older and, like, looking back into these movies, especially after the um, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and... Uh, the sequel, the sequel, Rise of the Planet of the well, Apes. Well, Rise was which, first, Dawn was second. Oh, Rise, yeah, okay, yes. Rise of the Planet of the Apes and then Dawn. Yeah, then watching those ones, I'm like, holy shit, these are some brilliant fucking movies. I Honestly, those ones held up really well. They did stay true to, like, you know, the apes, you know, coming into fruition, becoming smarter, mainly through Caesar, who was played by Andy Serkis. Right. I mean, it, yeah, no, and it all took place, like, within the San Francisco Bay Area, so I'm like, oh, hey, shit. Hometown area. <laughs> and then the sequel, I thought, just blew me away. I absolutely loved it. I actually went in theaters for that one. Yeah, I haven't seen... I've never seen a Planet of the Apes movie in the theaters. Um, I was actually kind of crippled. And I'm not really kidding. I was pretty much bedridden for three years. First part was physical cripple. And then the rest of it was mental cripple. I didn't want to go out into society. I didn't know how to function anymore. Um, but I was going to go see Planet of the Apes. I was so set on it. But um, I got... My spine got damaged severely, and I couldn't sit for anything. And I just was heartbroken that I couldn't go see this in theaters. So I ended up seeing it on video, and I still remember to this day going, "Oh my God, it looks amazing! These special effects." All right, uh, the story is kind of, um, hmm. I don't hate it, but I just find it so boring because there's nothing really exciting uh, about it. I think part of it is Mark Wahlberg being the lead was a really dull lead. Oh, that version. I know. Yeah, the Tim Burton. Yeah, the Tim Burton version was a little. It wasn't Tim Burton. Oh, no, not at all. The design was pretty cool. I know you couldn't even tell unless you found out it was actually Tim Burton in the credits. Yeah, I heard that Danny Elfman's score was amazing, and they thought it was too weird oh. for mainstream audiences. So they made him go back and redo it, which pissed him off severely. But he was contractually bound, so he did it. But he, he said he just there was nothing of him in that that score. I know that's what happens sometimes when a studio decides to you know take over and make the decisions. It's like come on. He gave us, Danny Elfman gave us Batman. He gave us Spider-Man, but he left during Spider-Man 3 because he couldn't do what he wanted to do with the black suit. Yeah. But he's done, like, so many memorable themes, uh, including uh, Tales from the Crypt, and he also did The Simpsons intro. Dick Tracy, Darkman, Nightbreed. Uh, oh, God, can I forget that? He did comedies in the 80s. Uh, you know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure didn't automatically lead to Beetlejuice in those big superhero movies. Before that, he did Back to School theme song. He did the Midnight Run theme song. A really unusual Right, stuff. he was even in Back to School. That's right, I forgot. We, uh, Oingo Boingo is in uh, 
back to school. And of course, Weird Science. Let's not forget that. That's not a score, but that oh, song is very crucial, obviously, to the movie. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah, I know. Right, Didymus? Hey, good job. All right. Yeah, he agrees. He knows. He loved that movie. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he just want now. He wants to. He, I, he. No, dude, we can't do that. No, put that down. Put that down. He wants to. Now he wants to create himself a female ape. I'm like, dude, that doesn't work. That's a movie. I understand your. I understand your enthusiasm. I love you, but no, no, Didymus. I know he's very young. He's only like a. He's he's only a year old. Now, have you ever read the novel by Pierre Boulet? Of uh, Planet of the Apes. Yeah, the original mm, no. novel. Yeah, cause, you know, it's very different. The The book portrays Planet of the Apes as if it were really like just a reverse version of our world in 1960-whatever. It was written, I think, four. And, um, you know, there's there's flying cars, there's cities, they have their own police. And oh. Like, it's, it's, uh, it was something they could not get on film. It was way too expensive. It was probably going to be about 30 or $40 million, um, which would be like $300 million in our dollars or $400 million. Uh, They did... Oh, God. I want to say it was originally greenlit at $8 million, and then because Dr. Doolittle cost so much and didn't make as much money as they thought they would make with it, uh, they had to cut the budget down to 6 which is, mm. yeah, so they had to cut corners like crazy, and, um, you know, so a lot of the ideas that were in the book, actually, if you read the book, it's almost nothing like me. It's just the bare concept. Rod Serling rewrote it uh, to have a little bit of his, you know, his style of writing, but also to fit the budget. Ah. Did yeah, you, no, I didn't like I said, wrote it? regarding uh, Planet of the Apes. No, I didn't really pay much to the attention to the uh, opening credits. Like I said, I was a kid, but even yeah. then, it was kind of fascinating. I mean, just to get that makeup effect to make them look like actual resemble apes. Yes, I thought it was it was great. And no matter how good those digital effects look or how uh, amazing, I, I think I want to say it was Stan Winston. Maybe it was Rick Baker that did Planet of the Apes with Mark Wahlberg. Uh, no matter how amazed those guys, you know, got to work together, it just it doesn't resonate with me the way that John Chambers work on the, the original Planet of the series. You know, yes, you can see that they're struggling to get that face. They had to over enunciate in order for the mask to move, but they're just something so iconic, and you just connect to it. Again, yes, definitely, there was great casting in the Tim Burton film. I mean, oh, you know, there's Mark, there's Mark Wahlberg, Tim Roth, uh, Michael Clark Duncan. And of course, Helena Bonham Carter, who was in like every single movie. Yes, that's Shang right. Tsung. Oh man, right? is that who he played in Mortal Kombat? Shang Tsung. Yeah, that's who he was. Kerry Hiroyuki Tokugawa. Yeah, no, Togawa. Did I say Tokugawa? Oh, I don't Tokugawa. know. I Sorry. We're, we'll get there. I'm getting tongue tied over it anyway. Ow! <laughs> Didymus. Okay, I know I made a mistake. You don't have to hit me for it. <laughs> have you seen Asshole. the original Planet of the Apes as an adult? Yes, I have actually. So. And I it definitely it hit it hit harder. Than, oh, than when I was a kid. Yeah. Me being an adult and more understanding. The, the Especially right at the end. You know, about racism and, you know, and, and you know, left right wing politics and stuff like that. You know, if I, I saw it at the right age. I saw it when I was 23 or 24. And by then I could completely understand every little nuance in their, uh, you know, the subtext of what they're trying to say. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's what I felt too. And I'm like, okay, Charlton Heston, I think. If he could, if he could have said it, he would have said it, and probably would have gotten away with it. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, well, actually, I was thinking more the other way around. The apes. Wow, I never thought of oh, that. Oh yeah. Before. Okay, so let's say this. This is during uh, when you know race riots and, and the Kennedys were killed and things were really in upheaval. It's Vietnam. Um, <laughs> I always thought that the apes stood for the white men, and that Charlton Heston and humans were portraying minorities. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe it's a flipped version of, say, what if? 
if we were the minority in our own country, white people, and, you know, and then blacks, Mexicans, or uh, American Indian, Native American, I mean, um, were uh, in charge. Asian, like, pretty much, yeah, people of color. No, I, you know, I don't think Rod Serling was a racist, so he wouldn't have written it like that. I just, I think what he did was try to take, um, you know, flip the script and basically take uh, what it would be like. He wanted to see um, what it would be like if he, uh, if he took the different roles and, and traded them out so that white people could see what it's like for black people or other minorities that are being um, subjugated and, and put down. And oppressed. And, you know, oppressed. You know, I think that was his way of saying, hey, look. Uh, if you understand how this works between the apes and the humans, that's exactly what whites and blacks, um, that's what's going on in our world right now. You need to open your eyes. And as, exactly. as much money as more racially aware. Yeah, as, as much money as it made as a sci-fi epic, you know, oh, wow, look at these amazing effects and this action. It, it's, uh, it's an important story to tell from changing, you know, your perspective of what it's like being someone else's shit. Exactly. That's what I thought it was, too. And also, I think... Another element I thought that it was was like nature kind of fighting back, evolving, you know. In a way, yeah. Considering, considering how they're all kept in zoos and stuff like that. Look, I mean, look what happened with the rise of the planet of the apes and dawn. Yeah. You know, it kind of flipped out on us because we, we managed to fuck shit up and kind of destroy ourselves. Is, is Colonel Taylor, uh, Charlton Heston's character, the first cynical anti-hero? I think so, yes. I'm trying to think of somebody before, I kinda, I, it, it did become a thing to like Dirty Harry, and then of course there was Snake Plissken, and then it just kind of became a normal thing where it's kind of the anti-hero is your focus. I, hmm, you know, now that you're thinking about it, I think it could be, especially right at the end, you know, when he says I'm home, and he sees the Statue of Liberty washed up on the beach, and he's like, you damn you all the hell. <laughs> you know what's funny is I didn't even get that joke in Spaceballs for years. My mom was like, oh yeah, it's from Planet of the Apes, and I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Um, and then I'd watch Spaceballs again and again. And at no point was like, hey, maybe I should go watch Planet of the Apes and figure out what this joke really means. Nope. Not <laughs> at all. I am dumb. Oh, shit. There goes the planet. It's like, <laughs> yep, we got humans on the planet. Now we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so everything that's great about the first one is almost immediately undermined in the second movie. Um, Roddy McDowell is not in the second one because I think he was filming... Uh, it was either he was in The Poseidon Adventure or I think he was off directing something at this time. So he's not in it, who's, who's a crucial character. And I loved um, him in this. The whole series uh, exists basically because of his character. Um, not Kim Darby, Kim Novak um, is his wife. And she's in the sequel and she's a big important part of it. It's just not the same. Um, not to be sexist, it's just she wasn't as strong and likable as a character, I think. But to be fair, Roddy McDowell wasn't that likable in the first Planet of the Apes. Oh, uh, okay. Sorry, I went off on Let's a ramble there. I do that sometimes. Sorry, everybody. If you've never listened to the show before, <laughs> I, I do these. I do these rambling things. Yeah, no, no, I know what you mean. I'm tr- I'm just a little conf- I'm just a little confused right now oh, as to uh, uh, the actual sequel. What's it called? Uh, Planet of the Apes 2 or... Uh, it's called Beneath the Planet of the uh, Apes. And, um, okay, so oh. Charlton Heston didn't want to be in it. Uh, he did a favor by showing up in it, but he says, I'm in the beginning, and I'm in the end, and you have to kill me off. And uh, so, you know, he's just in a brief, like, two-minute thing in the beginning of the movie. He's in the last ten minutes, and they kill him off. But here's the weird thing is, the guy they get to star in it is James Franciscus, who looks, with a beard, exactly, exactly. like Charlton Heston. It's bizarro. Yeah, it is. Were they trying to I know. People? I was like, <laughs> I know. I was like, well, I mean, I know they got two different actors for Bewitched, but come on. It's, it's weird. What are they I, doing? I'm almost yeah. guaranteeing you that when they sold it, the poster, the trailers, it looked like Charlton Heston was in all of the movie, 
and it just tricked people. And and I can imagine them going, no, is it? No, that's not him. What is it? Ah, he's a lot skinnier. Eh, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then of course, and then it turned out to be. Then there was that underworld of uh, mutants. Yeah. That really threw me off. I was yeah. like, whoa, what the hell? Well, the first hour of the movie is almost the same exact beats as the uh, the second movie is almost just half a movie because it's like they took a chunk of the first movie and just repeated it and then they just added the weirdo we uh, that little song they do and uh, you know it's just ridiculous where they worship the, the bomb. The Atomic missile. bomb, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, It's I think that's a literal definition of uh, how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. <laughs> Pull those masks off. That was horrifying. Oh, speaking of the next uh, Planet of the Apes movie, it's going to be called War for the Planet of the Apes. And it's going to have Woody Harrelson in (laughs) AB. It could be possible. I know uh, Woody Harrelson is going to be in it and uh, Judy Greer. And of course, Andy Serkis is coming back as Caesar. Of course, yeah. Um, So the third one. um, Okay, they they blew up up the planet and they killed off Charlton Heston. They killed off James Francis. They killed off everybody. They had a secret (laughs) loophole, you know, getting. Is, is the ape freaking out? Yeah, I know. It was like, hey, hey, it's okay, it's okay, Dinamis, relax, relax. Um, was like, you want to get some, you want to get something neat? Oh yeah, but come on, let's go get something neat. Uh, get your damn you want some hands on burrito. Yeah, no, he 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 loves burritos. He loves he loves avocado. He's Californian. <laughs> yes. Californian <laughs> apes coming to CBS Cartoon Mornings, y'all. <laughs> oh show. Except he doesn't know how to surf, not yet. Hang ten, dude. Give me a banana to surf on. Um, he's got a banana hammock on his, on his crotch. Uh, he's actually allergic to bananas. Oh, really? <laughs> hey, relax. Chill, chill. I know, I know. It's not... It, he didn't know. He's not trying to offend you. I know it's a stereotype. Chill, little dude. Just chill. The, uh, That's right. That, just go to sleep. Go to sleep. <laughs> relax. So, so, the third Get one, it opens up with, you know, uh, Cornelius and his wife, you know, coming to Earth in a spaceship. So, it flips it. Um, you know, it's easier to do on a budget too. We're, I think we're all sick and tired of looking at that set piece too. I was like, oh, again, ah, great. They didn't spend any money on this movie. Cause each time they cut the budget severely. Like I think the first one was 6 million. The second one was 3 million. The, the third one was two and a half, you know, just kept plummeting. Uh, so taking them to our time in the 1970s, which still doesn't really make sense, but I guess the science of it is when the bomb went off, they were already launched, which I have no idea why they, how could they launch when, you know, they couldn't get off the, I, uh, but they open up a wormhole and it goes through it, and that's how they end up on our planet, I guess. Science in movies, especially in the 70s, is always kind of wonky. Oh, that's right, yeah. But then that's it starts right. off that, really that's fun because that's... it's a fish-out-of-water story. Yeah. Mm, they end up being locked up, and then, you know, throughout the years, he ends up... Uh... Well, that, oh, yeah, that's, that's right. The, he has a kid. That's the fourth one. This is the one where, um, oh, um, you know, they're the, the, the big celebrities, all the news, they're the uh, top, uh, you know, the, the paint the town red, and they're everywhere, everybody loves them, and then they find out they're pregnant, and then all of a sudden shit changes, and they're like, kill the baby, you know, abort the baby, and so they, they go on the run, and, and of course the baby gets switched at the end, and they end up killing a, a, a normal chimpanzee, while uh, Caesar is kept in the cage, and that little trick at the end where he goes, mama, mama, where they, they, they take the footage and they reverse it, it's ridiculous. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, gosh. I haven't seen that one in a long while. It's kind of hard to remember that all those scenes exactly. One. Escape to the Planet of the Apes, uh, in my opinion, is the best sequel. No, no. I, it's very uh, Escape to the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, that's the third one. Yeah. Oh, I thought Conquest of the Planet of the Apes was the third one. No, Conquest is the fourth one. Now, that's the one where Caesar comes in. Um, 
Oh, okay. So it's fast forward like 20 years. I think it's 20 years. Uh, all the dogs have died off. You know, all the pets have died off from some strange disease, and the apes have mutated. And this is another thing where the science doesn't really work. <laughs> all of a sudden, it's just like, oh, yeah, they're all going to advance that fast. That, that totally makes sense. Um, but they're being enslaved, and, you know, they think that the baby's dead. The, the end of the intelligent ape was along, you know, in the, the previous film. And, you know... Caesar can't say anything. He can't pretend like he has any advanced intelligence. And then when they um, kill Ricardo Montalban, his not owner, but basically like his adopted father, he just loses. His friend. It. Yeah. And, and, and when I don't Rodney blame McDowell, him. When Rodney McDowell cries and he loses, trying to hold in that scream that just bellows out, uh, it's epic. It's one of the greatest movies in the entire series, or moments in the entire series. Oh, yeah, for sure. Hands down. I know. Stuff like that. Especially, you know, Ricardo Montalban. You killed, well, you killed freaking Khan. How could you? <laughs> Captain Kirk, uh, well, Kirk was supposed they, to do they that. They used his skin as a, for a couch because it was fine Corinthian leather. Corinthian. Say it with an accent. Corinthian. Um, that one is pretty epic. And I finally saw on the Blu-ray, they finally released the full cut. Because when it was in theaters and on television, they cut out a lot of stuff. I swear to you, it should have been R-rated. There's so much blood at the end of that movie. Holy shit. Damn. Yeah, really? Seriously, you need to go see the Blu-ray release of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. For years, we all saw the, the PG version. And the R-rated, well, I don't know if it's legitimate they called R-rated or they just did non-rated. But it's dark. Different ending. Holy shit. Because uh, the ending that we all knew for so long was at the end, he preaches about peace and about everybody getting along. No. There's an alternate ending where it's basically like, we are the kings now, you are all our slaves, we are going to destroy anybody who tries to take us down. More akin to what the newer movies are about. You know, it's closer in line with the Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, yes. I know, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely closer to that. Also, yeah. looking back on Mark Wahlberg's version, yeah, the ending, where Thade was surrounded by all that spaceship technology, and then it turns out, he went back in time and changed everything. Like his statues on the Lincoln Memorial. Abraham. And <laughs> Ape. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh shit. Yeah, that was kind of it's like you could tell there was supposed to be some kind of a setup for a sequel. Yeah, it didn't happen. Even but though it made no. quite a bit of money. It made a ton of cash. And um, I don't know why Fox never went forward with sequel. I don't know. I guess some people were just really upset about it regarding and probably didn't get uh, as good critic reviews, did it? No, it, it got pretty bad. I think it was like a 35% or something like that. And, you know, long, long time fans, you know, they kind of rejected it. You know, the people who really didn't know the series very much, you know, like, especially like kids, I think they were okay with it. Um, but still, it cost $100 million, and I think it brought in like $300 million worldwide. You think they would have gone a little bit lower budget, you know, maybe find a different director than Tim Burton, um, you know, and cut corners here. They could have made it a sequel for easily $50 million. Oh, yeah, definitely. They wouldn't have had to push so much either. If that movie hadn't fallen um, apart, it would have been so hard to get uh, the series that we are watching now, you know, Rise, Dawn, and War. Uh, it would have been so torturous of a pre-production to get those going if that Tim Burton movie hadn't failed so badly. Oh, for sure. And I'm so glad they, like, picked up back with the franchise with, you know, Dawn, Dawn Rise, and War. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, like I said, it, it's very understanding. The kids could get into it. It's very smart, very well thought out. gives a great introduction as to how, you know, the Planet of the Apes actually came to be. You know, it was Caesar, and, it, and of course it makes sense to name the monkey, the uh, main character Caesar. Yeah. Who in introduces, I mean, the side because the side effect of the virus that was supposed to make people intelligent 
only worked on chimpanzees, but for humans, it kind of regresses and kills them. Yeah, it does like a short term thing, and then all of a sudden it just collapses. Exactly, which kind of sets up the ne- the plot of the next movie, where a lot of humanity is extinct due to it. Yeah, and those sequels are just top notch. Scott Frank was originally supposed to direct Rise of the Planet of the Apes, because um, he's the one who wrote the script, and then he said his version was much, much darker. I want to read that script. I want to know what it was that was in his, you know, his original concept and how much they changed it when, um, I can't remember who, who directed the, the Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I'm pretty sure he's the guy who did, uh, The Illusion, but I'm not sure. It doesn't really matter. Oh, uh, Rupert, uh, Rupert Wyatt. Yeah, thank you. Rupert Wyatt. Um, but, you Rupert. know, the, now they also have top-notch directors, these guys with true vision. The sequels back in the day were done by guys who basically were workmen. You know, they had, oh, we can make this fast. It doesn't really need to be that artistic. It's just like, who shoots fast? Who is competent? You know, they got uh, Ted Post. Uh, J. Lee Thompson was uh, an Academy Award-winning director with Guns of Navarone. And then he comes in, uh, you know, 12 years later to do two. He did Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and the final one, Battle of the Planet of the Apes. And basically, he was a drunk. He, he could get the job done, but his career was just destroyed because he couldn't stop his drinking. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of a bummer. That'll usually do that. I mean, that's. I think isn't that what happened to Mel Brooks for a little while? I I don't know about that at all. Um, I haven't heard anything about that, but it's possible, I guess. Uh, this is back in the day when these secrets were kind of kept under wraps. You know, it's like, oh, uh, let's not let anybody know they're drunk or they sleep with underage women, uh, stuff like that. You know, Hollywood was more secretive back in the seventies and previous. Um, it wasn't until like the tab. Roman Polanski. Yeah. You heard Roman Roman Polanski want to rip his ears off like a banana? Peel him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, but no, the second one, um, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, oh, I thought that was a much better movie. Like, yeah, I loved Rise, it was great, but when Dawn came out, holy shit. Yeah. Like, I loved, it was constantly, it was more the uh, ape perspective than it was human perspective. And Koba, uh, you know, of the Planet of the Apes, he always, he was always disagree with Seaver. he was like a libertarian Tea Party, you know, <laughs> Asshole kind of wanted to just, you know, go in and kill all the humans because he's like, you know, this, they did this and that, blah, 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 blah. And Caesar's like, dude, the, most of them are dead anyway. It's like, what's the point of constantly hating them and trying to kill them? Yeah. Let them try and do their work. Well, I'm sure and... the more of the Planet of the Apes is going to be further down the road where there's more babies, you know, being born. And the apes are, are a bigger number, a much bigger number than they were in the two, first two Oh, for sure. And I love that. See, I love the fight between him and a. Uh, the Caesar, the fight between Caesar and Koba was just, I thought, so well done. Yeah, and, and especially when he just aspects of that movie uh, came from Battle of the Planet of the Apes. You know, where they're trying to get along. You know, humans and apes, and it just keeps getting pushed further and further. Um, and they're on both sides. The humans are pushing it too far, and the apes are pushing it too far. They want to go back to war, and it comes down to Cornelius and um, fuck. I don't, I don't remember. I, I hate when I miss names, but I can't remember all these. But I'm trying to. But you know the, Cornelius and the, the main Caesar. Villain. Yeah, no, 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 Caesar and uh, you're right. I said Cornelius. I'm sorry, Caesar and the dude from and uh, Well, in your movie, I'm talking about uh, Battle of the Planet of the Apes, where oh. it's the guy from BJ and the Bear. Uh, I just said his name like a little bit ago, and I can't remember now. Whatever. I'm gonna stop talking. <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> okay, so after Battle of the Planet of the Apes, you know they finally realize there's not that much money coming in. We can't keep cutting this budget because. There's hardly any action in Battle of the Planet of the Apes. There's a lot of talking. There's no real sets. Uh, they do the TV series. Lasts 13 episodes. I cannot believe it only lasted 13 episodes. It's amazing. It, it focuses heavily on the idea of the original Planet of the Apes, where it's a lot of social commentary mixed in with the sci-fi. And, you know, they bring back uh, Roddy McDowell's Galen, 
Uh, it's like an alternate world version of Planet of the Apes, and there's two new heroes in it, and it's phenomenal. You have to. I know. Is it easy to access? Um, I want to say it's on Netflix, but I'll try to find it for you. It, it was on DVD, but I believe it's out of print now. Um, but this brings us to the second half of our show, where we talk about the animated series Return to the Planet of the Apes. Now, you, yeah. you oh, got to watch this, correct? Eric Server, I think, is the guy you mentioned. What's was that? Eric Server the guy from BJ the Bear or Greg Evigan? No, Greg Evigan's the star. It's, um, I just said the damn Eric, Eric Server? No. Uh, Linda McCula. No. I'm I'm going through this right now. I will find out this name. I just said the damn name and I forgot already. This is ridiculous. I got the brain of a chicken. Murray Hamilton? No. Oh my god, no. Uh, uh Greg Hamilton? Evigan. No, you just said Craig Evigan. <laughs> uh Eric Server. You just said Eric Server. Stop saying the same names. <laughs> just keep saying it. It's like through tears. Charles <laughs> Napier. John Dullahan. It's Claude Akins. Oh, Claude Akins, okay. Hey, Sheriff Elroy, me, yeah, okay. What kills me is that you went to BJ and the Bear instead of Battle of the Planet of the Apes to find out who it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take the long road. <laughs> All right, so, Return to the Planet of the Apes. What did you think of this <clears throat> of this series? I thought it was like, it. It was the animation was kind of um, very still and stiff. Like, you know, that's almost stop-motion animation. Yeah, it's but then there were some stylized. scenes where it looked like it was... Uh, it looked like it was um almost Ralph Bakshi like. Yeah. But I was I was looking at some of the cutscenes from the first episode. I'm like, okay, he just sits there and points, and then he, then there's one where it's like the apes are just looking and staring as they throw the gas grenade, just looking left and right with their eyes. I'm like, is that necessary? <laughs> I don't know. There's some unnecessary. There are some unnecessary clips in there, but overall, I thought it was pretty well done. Yeah, here's the thing. It's it still held on to the plot original. Yeah, it's a frustrating uh, series because the storyline is so strong. These scripts are actually pretty well done. It's the animation is so insanely limited. I've never seen a show in the seventies this limited. Oh yeah, I yeah it wasn't only like, like what 24, 22 episodes. I didn't even know this existed until you mentioned it to me. Yeah, it's uh, thirteen episodes. You know the same company. I thought I thought the same company did Star Trek, and I couldn't figure out why they both came out at the same time and why Planet of the Apes was so much lower budget. It's not. I'm wrong. Filmation, I'm pretty sure did Star Trek. Um, the Patty Freeling did Plan of the Apes. You know, they had a lot of money at the time. So I don't understand why this is so cheap unless Fox didn't want to pony up the cash. You know, they got the license and they're like, well, we're only going to be like, you know, $100,000 an episode. But we need 250000 and you're not getting it. <laughs> it's like, all right, 75000 That's even lower. You're not even <laughs> going to get work? two. <laughs> all right, 150000 yeah, Okay, it, uh, a little higher. Uh, three it million. Combines, Too much. It All right. It combines concepts though that were in the book. You know, the flying cars, the, the better technology, but it also marries it with the look and the style of the film series. No, it definitely did, especially the original film. But I was a little taken back by like all the jeeps they were driving because I remember from watching when I was watching the original film. I remember horses were their main use of uh, transportation. Yeah. Well, they tried to take it closer to the book because the animation allows you to portray it, you know, uh, you know, ideas oh, yeah. you can afford in film. Now you can basically do anything in film, you know, and animation is the one that's, like, lagging behind. True, I know. Honestly, the animation, I was like, wait, well, especially since you, now that you mentioned that there were, like, flying cars and, like, high-tech equipment, I'm like, where is that? All I see are some old 70s military trucks. What gives? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, so uh, there's one interesting aspect. I hate it when I start to choke. Aspect? 
Well, I went to say something and I started to choke. I've been choking this whole episode and I don't know why. I'm smoking weed while we're recording, man. <laughs> um, well, then, damn it, pass the joint. Shoot, I know. Didimus would want to get a hold of it. Didimus, wake up. Would you, would you hit that joint? See, he loves it. It's, a, it's, it's natural. It's a plant, right? You know it. You use it to relax when you're stressed out, right? Okay, good. Um, there you go. One See? interesting aspect about this is most, Legalize of, it. most of the voice cast um, I have never heard of, except Austin Stoker, who is in Battle of the Planet of the Apes. He's also in this animated series. Most people know him, though, from uh, Assault on Precinct 13, the original movie. Oh, oh my God. I still have yet to see that one. Holy. I know it's a junk it. yeah. film, too. I don't like the remake. I don't like the one with um, uh, Lawrence Ethan Fishburne Hawk. and Ethan Hawke. Yeah, it's not that good because the script requires them to say the F-bomb every single sentence and you get tired. It's like, yeah, all right, we get it. You guys are tough. Stop saying it's like white noise. Yay. The original one is amazing, but there's this weird habit that John Carpenter had through his first few movies is he would do this thing where he'd hold one note. Just hold it. One really high-pitched, annoying note. And you're like, oh, God, please just stop doing it. Oh wow, I don't know. I mean, I, as far as like his first movies, I've always gone back to uh, you know, Skip from New York, The Thing, and Halloween, and all that. Yeah. But I never noticed that high note. He does it in the fog at the very end, and he does it definitely in a solid presenting. That might be the only two movies where he did that, where he just held one button. I think he does it at the end of the first Halloween as well. <laughs> yeah. You oh well. That now that I'm okay. Yeah. No. Okay. Now it's coming back to me. Yeah. It is. It's. It's. It was definitely there. Okay, so um, uh, what is your favorite sequel? What is your favorite film in the entire series? Hmm, that is a tough one. I kind of want to say, perhaps, um, I don't know. I think people are are going to be taken back by what I said, but perhaps uh, the conquest where they actually take over, yeah. and it's at the end. That is a pretty damn strong movie. I mean, just the war that happens at the end. The, the the intensity of it all, just building and building, you feel for the apes. You understand why they revolt. Also, Conquest is the only one, in my opinion, that has that very specific look of mid-70s to early 80s sci-fi. Lots of blacks, lots of grays, lots of flashy panels where it's just random buttons lighting up. <laughs> uh, exactly. It's just a very particular thing I enjoy. My favorite is Escape, though Conquest is very, very close. Of the new series, it's too early to say because, of course, there's only two out of the trilogy. Do you think they'll continue after that trilogy? Do you think they'll do the story um, post-war? Oh, my gosh. I, I'm i not sure. Like I said, depending on how this third one does. The second one, uh, honestly, it was. It was a better, it was a it was a much better movie. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes was, you know, had much higher critical, uh, critical reviews. It was definitely one of the best movies of 2014. Yeah, and I think the budget's and, a little bit bigger, so they might have to pull back, I think, after the trilogy is over. Who knows? This may explode and turn into a massive, like, Fast and Furious, but, you know, the Fast and the Fury, Furious, Furious, <laughs> apes driving cars and racing each other. Oh, my God. What if they did that? What if they just did that? It was like, they just remade the whole Fast and the Furious, but it was all monkeys. <laughs> Vin, just as long as Vin Diesel, well, they'd have to bring in Vin Diesel, because there needs to be some human element. Get but your not paws really, off my car, thing. you damn dirty ape. <laughs> I don't got paws. I got hands. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you could do a Vin Diesel voice. Holy shit. <laughs> Please say, say Groot. I am Groot. I'm Groot. <laughs> I'm Groot. It's 
like you have gravy in your mouth and you're trying to hold it there while you're talking. I'm Superman. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Damn, I can't stop coughing. Um, <laughs> right, Cinnamon? Okay, good job. He agrees. Uh, he's a fan of the Fast and Furious series. Okay, cool. Um, the comic books. I want to touch on those real quick. Uh, I've never been able to read the Marvel comic books. They're too expensive. I wish they put them in a collected edition. They still haven't done this. It's bugging me. Uh, at least as far as I know, maybe it came under the radar. And oh, like a graphic novel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, kind of yeah. like with the... They would do that with uh, the Death of Superman. You know, they did that with the whole series. They put them into a bunch of graphic novels yeah. and the Nightfall series, too. Well, it's the Marvel uh, 70s series of Planet of the Apes was really, like, black and white and mature, and it looked really fantastic from what I've seen of it, but I've never been able to get my hands on an issue. Now, when it came back in the late, I think it was 88 or 89 is when um, Malibu Comics licensed the rights. I want to say it was Innovation briefly before that or something. They optioned the rights, and the artwork looked like shit. The stories weren't too bad, but it was terrible artwork. Oh, wow. Yeah, and this uh, the the series that Dark Horse did when the new Tim Burton movie came out, that was actually really, really smart and intelligent. It was short-lived because the movie just didn't resonate the way the original series did. So I think the Dark Horse only lasted a year. Um, I don't know. Are they, are, they, are they doing Planet of the Apes comic books right now? Have you seen any? Mm, none that I've no, none that I've seen. No, I'm average. Where I look, whenever I look around, I'm always looking in like the DC section. I and yeah, I, I've never I've never come across it. Maybe like some old vintage uh, ones for sale, but that's about it. No, I feel like somebody should be licensing the rights to do this. It seems kind of, I mean, there probably is, I just haven't noticed it. Um, uh, I was going to say, um, but I feel like for a short period of time, there was a weird Star Trek Planet of the Apes miniseries, and I want to read that, because that sounds crazy. Damn. Can you see Captain Kirk beating the crap out of some, you know, Cardinal Zaius, <laughs> or General Zaius? Yeah, that's right. Uh, oh my gosh, yeah, that's right, General Zaius. Let's see. Who is doing that? Um, 2014 Boom has uh, collaborated with IDW, the Star Trek crossover, the Prime Directive, Planet of the Apes. Should be, oh, the Primate Directive. That's clever. Um, so I wonder if they're going to continue it. Yeah, I, I just love I love the concept of Planet of the Apes. Just the whole idea just captures my imagination. And I just watch it over and over and over. I love it. Wait, uh, uh, which one again? Uh, the original series. You know, the original five just captures my imagination. I love watching them. Um, one day I'm going to cap- get the uh, the new trilogy. When they finish, you know, the, the new trilogy with War, I'm going to definitely grab that. I'm going to pretend that uh, the Tim Burton one just doesn't exist. It's just too uh, tiresome and boring for me. Simos has returned. <laughs> like, so, that, so that's who they worshipped this whole time? Dude. Was a rocket? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, honestly, yeah, no. Yeah. Oh, God, it's all coming back to me. I mean, my mom actually bought it. We watched it back in uh, when it came out on DVD. I mean... Yeah, again, it looks great and the concept is great, you know, but still just ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's forget it happened. I'm pretty sure Mark Wahlberg hated it. Yeah. Afterwards. Well, it just he's Hockey not, he hadn't really found himself yet. It wasn't until a few years later I think he like locked in. I don't know if Mark Wahlberg knows how to read a script though. Here's the thing is I think he just understands the idea. He doesn't know how a screenplay plays out. Like um yeah, who I want to say is really smart about their screenplays is Tom Hanks. You know, he really understands his scripts. He chooses them carefully. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis clearly studies and analyzes oh, every God. aspect of what's going on in the movie to see if it'll work, because that dude's very careful. I don't. Th- I think Mark Wahl- oh, yeah. Wahlberg just wants to work. He just wants to have fun and make movies, and not all of them are winners. Oh, yeah, no, like that, um, what was that one stupid one he did? It was, like, based on the true story. Was that, uh, Bodybuilder? It was that Michael Bay one? Oh, you don't like that movie? I love Pain and Gain. Well, the one I don't like, where I was disappointed, left the theater going, what, was Max Payne. What a waste of time. Oh, God, that was just 
why no honestly when you adapt a video game into a movie it just cannot work out i mean mortal the first mortal Kombat was uh an exception but everything else was just garbage the first was an evil nah and then they just kept oh god it's finally dying i'm just so glad it's finally dying i can't believe they made a zelda movie you know they make planet of the apes games but i've never played one i think i made a few of them i never knew planet of the apes games existed are they nintendo or super let me look um there's some mobile games there was one made for the pc in 98 uh playstation um that looks like it's about it revenge of the planet of the apes in 2003 what is that i don't know oh my god atari 2600 planet of the apes game was developed but they never went beyond prototype it probably was that bad no it's just you know the whole market crashed and they decided to shut down it says it was assumed lost until 2002 when collectors identified a prototype found earlier in a case labeled alligator people as the missing apes game dude oh my god it's out there um it's another company called retro design complete and released a game called revenge of the apes in 2003 you play as taylor as he fights apes across several layers levels as you reach the statue of liberty oh my god we need to find this game and play it indeed we do i have to get an emulator and i have to play it if we ever now get back in the same town again or anywhere near each other we need to start a podcast where we play old games and like <laughs> review them like what would we think oh wow um oh gosh it's gonna be a tough one to review i mean ugh, that's that's once when it, once i get off my dc craze then maybe yeah, you know what? We also have another podcast called Comics on Infinite Earths, which is kind of a spinoff of Swords. It's kind of in the world of Back in Tunes, um, where we discuss uh, significant moments in comic book history. Uh, I can't seem to get a single person to discuss anything in the DC Universe. It's all Marvel. Everybody wants to discuss Marvel, and I can't do that. I want to do some independent comics and some DC. So, Jacob, I'm looking at you, man. you got to be there to save the show. I know. I will definitely read up some some DC. I have to read up some some of the comic, the new comics you gave me, like uh, New Warriors and some of the indie stuff yeah. that I haven't even heard of. Yeah, it's with some weirdo comics. And part of that was uh, those weirdo comics. They would license rights to movie franchises that still had a following, but weren't as big anymore. And that's why the Planet of the Apes keeps popping up because it's not that expensive to get the rights. And some of these companies go, "Yeah, let's let some new ideas into this world." And it's such a huge mythology. I bet you that after War, the Planet of the Apes is over with, that Fox, sadly, is going to probably go, Hey, look, you know how the Marvel Universe exists? And, uh, I don't know why I sound like Mr. Ham on South Park. Hey, kids. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, we don't have a, a multi-universe, a cross-title kind of thing going on. That's bad. <laughs> um, they're probably going to do that. They're probably going to decide to make a Planet of the uh, Apes universe and like add other things to it. It's going to probably suck. Yep. Giant robots fighting apes. <laughs> Holy shit, I would actually oh, watch God. that, though. Chucky fighting apes. They'll, oh, my they'll God! Play- <laughs> dude, oh, speaking of um, horror movie franchises, dude, Universal's doing like a monster movie universe. Yeah, I know. It's because uh, Universal's like Dracula and- a franchise. I know. <laughs> I know, and then there's also, um, oh yeah, then there's also Hasbro. There's going to be a Hasbro movie universes, like, I think, who knows, G.I. Joe and fucking Transformers. Why? That should be the first step right there. Do G.I. Joe versus Transformers, because people are starting to get a little tired of Transformers, and G.I. Joe's never really broken out. They've done well, they've made back their money, definitely, but it's never really broken out as a must-see. And if you do a G.I. Joe versus Transformers right now, before everybody's sick of Transformers, it could blow up and help both franchises. And then G.I. Joe can go off to its own thing. G.I. Joe right now is an anthology because 
Um, they've changed the cast almost completely from the first to second movie, and they're clearly not going to get anybody back from the second movie because you know Dwayne Johnson's moved on; those other guys aren't that important. So the third movie's probably going to be a whole new cast, new story. It's just going to get weird. It's like a it, no concern. Right, and oh god, speaking of uh, fucking Transformers, the next one that's coming out, The Last Night. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I should. I can't even look forward to that. I'm so sick I don't know. Of fucking. But my... I'm not sick. Let's let's try to wrap this up because we're trying to go off on a strange tangent here. Um, so Planet of the Apes series is a definite must. You have to see it. And it, you know what? It took me a couple of tries to get into the animated series, but it works. It's just you got to be patient. There's not a lot of action. They did not spend money on the animation. They spent it on the story. And um, yeah, they did. Read the comics when <laughs> you find them. Everything, every about everything about the series amazes me, except for that Tim Burton one. It looks great. It's just boring. Um, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's all I have but, to say um, about the series. Yeah, I will say this. Uh, uh, what's really brought back the series is, of, of course. Uh, Dawn and Rise and Dawn of the Planet of the yeah, Apes. Those so brought it back big time. Oh my god! I know the second one is actually like, oh god! I loved watching that. It was such a beautiful movie, and I was like, oh god, please don't! I was I, I was like thinking to myself, please don't die, Caesar! Please don't die! <laughs> yeah, I know he's my favorite no, character. No! Um, and oh god! Rest his soul, uh, Roddy McDowell. Ah, oh, so amazing. He he stuck with that series so long, and when he could have walked away, you know, he did four of the five movies, TV show. Um, you think he would have just stopped, and he didn't, and uh, he is the heart and soul of that series. Oh, hands down, yes. I know, playing both Caesar and Cornelius. And it made sense. To, it, it made sense for him to play Cornelius. I mean, you know, it, you know, just put on some makeup, have the same voice, you know, the same characteristics as his father. Yeah. Come on, man. Oh, But, uh, yeah, God rest him. I really, hope, I really hope war will be just as great. It, has, it, it should conclude. Definitely. Okay, everybody, check us out on Facebook under, what's that? Two different pages. If you like the movie stuff, check us out on Video Night. If you like the cartoon stuff, check us out on Back in Tunes. We're going to continue this series where we discuss movies that um, eventually spun off into animation. I know we're kind of not feeding our normal animation audience as much as we usually do. Uh, sorry. Um, but it's kind of a way to two birds with one stone, cross the audiences, maybe get some attention for each show. It's obvious I'm just trying to pander. <laughs> um... The next one I think we're going to do, how do you feel about uh, the Pink Panther series? Do you want to discuss that, the movies and the uh, cartoon? Oh, for sure. I definitely grew, I definitely grew up on the uh, cartoon, um, like the early 90s. Yeah. And I had the video game for Super Nintendo. Nice. So that will be our next episode. Uh, future episodes we'll be discussing doing uh, the Bill and Ted. You know, there's only two movies, but there was a TV show and an animated series. That sounds like it might be something worth discussing. Um, Bill and Ted? Yeah, the Bill and Ted series, definitely. I mean, it's the 25th anniversary oh, yeah. of Bogus Journey. Um we also were discussing doing Rambo, which I'm sure might be a little painful. Those movies are awesome. That cartoon, I'm not so sure about. Uh, there's a Karate Kid movie series and uh, animated series. And uh, uh, there's a, a Porky Pig, apparently, I was doing. Pepe, Pepe, Pepe. Uh, Police Academy. Police Academy movies and an animated series. I did not know about the Police Academy animated series, but I do remember the action figures I had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's definitely more episodes like this coming up. We're going to be just like crossing over and discussing you know both the films and the animated series and until then be excellent to each other and jacob send us out all right y'all namaste and good luck you want to say something uh didymus <laughs> yes right fuck that tim burton version all right all right good no thank you didymus we needed that chip <laughs> all right you want to push the button didymus you want to send us out okay so countdown five Four, three, two, go. What, nothing? You didn't say anything. Oh, namaste and good luck, you guys. Oh, all right, everybody. Have a good night.
Well, you don't say. <laughs> you blew it up! Damn you! Damn you all to hell! <laughs> oh. Hello! Hello! Welcome, everybody, to the second episode of Comics on Infinite Earths. I'm your host, Michael, and my co-host is uh, William. How's it going, William? Uh, not bad. Hey there. All right. So the first episode, we discussed the 30th anniversary of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And this episode, we're going to jump ahead a little bit in the timeline, basically because I had nothing ready to go read-wise, because I live in the middle of nowhere, and getting comics is hard. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to be straight up front with you guys. We might be, I wanted to do like Crisis, you know, like Secret Wars, you know, all the stuff in the 80s and work our way up to the 90s. Uh, that plan went to hell because I live uh, apparently on the moon. And um, so this episode we're going to discuss the creation of Image Comics, that first initial run, you know, with the the, uh, the owners and the, the people who left Marvel and their first series and, and see what we thought of them now. And uh, what we thought of them then, and, and where are these guys? You know, what are they up to these days? Um, do you want to start this one off? Uh, I was just going to comment that I don't, I don't think that's too bad an idea, really, because uh, it, se- it kind of seems like Crisis was one of the very first things that started uh, the mass commercialization of Marvel and DC and some of their crazy concepts. And it kind of seemed like Image was, in a way, the culmination of all that. It... it uh, it took the commercialization to a whole new level, and it, I think it helped spawn like a lot of the, all the crazy universes that got going. You know. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah. Image Comics for younger readers is nothing like what we experienced in the very beginning. Now, yeah. it's very independent-minded, original ideas, no massive universes. It's about the creator, not so much about hey, mm-hmm. can we sell this? Of course, Walking Dead being their biggest success. Um, you know, that's what people probably mostly mm-hmm. know Image for, but they've been doing great things for decades. If you have not read the comic Chew, you absolutely must go pick this up. There is nothing else like it on the shelves. That is my selection from them right now. Um, but mm. you're right. In the beginning, it was uh, mass commercialization, huge sales. These guys were celebrities. The story came second. <laughs> uh, looking yes. back on it, it's a little painful. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if people really understand the scale of things and how much it's changed in that uh, today Walking Dead is so successful, and yet I think their current issues sell maybe like 70000 per issue, whereas when these image comics got going, uh, their first issues were selling, what, like a million each? Yeah, it was, it was a insane. million was not uncommon. Uh, it just, yeah. What, was um, X-Men? But let's see. Uh, how, go. Was, was, sorry, was Jim Lee's X-Men the first comic book to sell a million copies, and then it just kept building and building and building from there? Uh, I think you might be right. Um, I, I know that when Jim Lee and uh, Todd McFarlane got going on their respective comics, I, I know that like even the, the regular monthly sales were approaching a million. Um, and then they had, like, when they did, of course, then when they did first issues, uh, the first issue of Spider-Man in 1990 and first issue of the new X-Men comic, 
Um, the Spider-Man was what? I think about two million. Yeah. And but I think X-Men. I think you're right. X-Men was the first to break a million. I think it got a one and a half million because it had what four or five covers, which <laughs> yeah, I thought was ridiculous. insane. <laughs> this is during the era mm-hmm. where. Uh, if you were to see a special edition of a cover that had, like, die cut or glow in the dark, you know, foil embossed, foil embossed, oh my god, uh, that was not <laughs> uncommon for them to just throw that out there on a regular basis, and it would cost you always a minimum an extra buck, and it's funny how few of those comics mm-hmm. are even readable today, because I find just like, oh, this is shit. Yeah, and, and yet I was one of those idiots who was buying all, all that stuff. I was like, die-cut cover, uh, glow-in-the-dark. I, I thought it all was, um, how do I, what's a good word for it, amazing? Why would I think that? I, I, I don't really understand. But I remember one uh, time you got uh, like 50 copies of something just to get the limited edition, like glow-in-the-dark version, <laughs> and then you had to sell them off with it. Was uh-huh. like a Valiant comic, like Bloodshot number one or something? Uh, that was probably the worst comic decision I ever made. <laughs> And you called it correctly that it was insanity, and things had gone on too far. And uh, yes, it was it was Magnus Robot Fighter. Would you believe I still have like eight or ten copies of that? I it was will Magnus take Robot Fighter. Off of you, I will buy one. I want to know <laughs> because eventually I want to do yeah. a, an episode about about Valiant Comics. And uh, um, I, yes. think, I think that's important to like look at the hubbub that was around. The launch of Image and launch of Valiant, I will say, though, that Valiant has stood the test of time. Yes, it's rather surprising that the, like, the early issues of their initial series are actually still worth pretty decent money. Uh, but by the way, that issue was Magnus Robot Fighter pl- uh, versus Predator, oh, number one. Right. So it wasn't, yeah, so it wasn't even a mainline Valiant. It was, it was some stupid crossover. And I think by buying 50 issue copies, I got a free platinum version Woo! copy. Yeah, which is worth about five bucks today. So. <laughs> now, now yeah. before you judge him, uh, you were an entrepreneur <laughs> before you were even like yeah. high school age. I think you were like 13 or 14 where you had your eye on the prize yeah. of... You know, yeah. this is what I want to do for a living, and you focused. True, it was part of the speculation market, uh, so some of those really yeah. stunk up the joint, but you you had, were a diverse reader. Yeah. You weren't just about superheroes. You were kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. But most of those speculators, they, they doubled down on some of these image comics, and then they wouldn't show up on time, mm-hmm. or... Or they were just terrible garbage, and then everybody's like, oh, I, after a couple of years, the sheen of image was off. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of funny how that happened, where everybody was so excited, the sales were so high, and um, I think people were getting what they wanted as far as artwork. Uh, I mean, I don't know, it, it was it was Dale Keown, it was good Dale Keown artwork on, on Pitt, and it was good McFarlane on Spy, or not, sorry, Spawn, yeah. um, but the stories were not great, and yeah, they started coming out like every... Oh, do you remember how Pitt only had, like, I think they only had three issues in their first year? It was torturous. Uh, <laughs> There's some of those. Um, now, Dale Keown and Sam Keith are very well known for that period of time, but they're not part of the original core of Image. They're not part of the owners. But, yeah, to ignore <laughs> Max and the Pit um, would be a huge mistake here. And both series are very influential now, but it was a pain in the ass waiting for those issues to come out. 
Yeah. Now, now who were who were the core? I, uh, McFarlane, Silvestri, I want to uh, say. Yeah. So it's uh, so a bunch of people went to Marvel demanding that they had a bigger yeah. portion of their creations. They're not talking about the stuff they worked on. They didn't want more royalties on Spider Man. They wanted the characters that they would create during that time, and they wanted a bigger piece of it. And and some of them actually demanded mm-hmm. to have the actual rights. Uh, so. As far as I know, Chris Claremont is the only writer to quit. He was uh, actually not part of the original Image Core, but he just left because he couldn't take anymore. So we have Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, Rob LaField, Mark Silvestri, Jim Valentino. Oh, I'm missing someone. Um, I know Will Portacio left, but he had to deal with family issues, so he could not be part of the original Core. Um... There is one other mm. dude, and I, and I feel terrible for not remembering. Uh, if I had online access right now, do you want to look it up uh, see who the original core team was? Let's see. You said Jim Lee, right? Correct. Um, what, was Will's Portatio? No, he, he was, was kind of a laggard, I think. Yeah, he was I the think one he that kinda... he quit at the same time, but he was the one I was saying that couldn't because of family reasons. Uh, mm. So that's why Wetworks came oh, okay. so much later, but he didn't actually get to be an investor in Image Comics. Oh, huh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm not sure who the who the other person was. Yeah, I mean, I'm just um, it. But, um, <laughs> let's talk be. about the comics. Uh, so the big boy, the one that got everything started, everybody went crazy for, was Spawn. Yes. Yeah, it, and and really, I mean, other than, I would say, because that issue, that comic is still going, it's on, what, like issue 250 or something? Yeah, 250. Um, I, I, yeah. I'm not a fan, so I, it's hard for me to know, but I know it's still going. I... Yeah, I wasn't a fan either, really. But, I mean, arguably, it, it might be Image's biggest hit. Uh, uh, but, yeah, I, I think I read through issue maybe nine and then uh, started <laughs> giving up on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember Sam... Wait, what was the spinoff? There was two cops that had a popular series for a while. Sam and Twitch? Oh. Yeah, I think that's what it hey, was. Oh, you're... Okay. Sorry, you were cutting out a little bit there. It's okay. I'm actually uh, looking up Image Comics right now, and it's eating up a little bit of my data. Sorry, people. Oh, uh, okay. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I have a couple things in front of me that I was looking at. Well, well, it's funny. Symbolically, I had right in front of me the first issue of Spider-Man uh, from 1990, the McFarlane one. And uh, the symbol to me is that I know, and he knew, I'm sure Todd McFarlane knew that, this was not really Spider-Man number one so much as Todd McFarlane number one, right. you know? And, yeah, and he knew, like, they were making massive money off of this. And, I, you know, I can understand. Not just from, like, a part of it was about self-publishing, but also a lot of it was just about they knew that um, they were hot right now and millions were being made, and and uh, they thought that they, they should have some of that. Yeah, I thought the Spawn movie was terrible, but I love the cartoon. The HBO series is fantastic, and I just felt like the movie was just all special effects. I don't, I don't care. Even though I like Michael J. White a great deal, I, I was like, eh. Like, yeah, I didn't. Now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was a bad movie. Um, I know I watched it. I remember it somewhat, but there was I can't remember anything good about it. You know, uh, yeah, it was mm-hmm. just it, I would. I give it about a D. Is, yeah. is well, he I was give smart it. enough to know that A, he was going to burn himself out. Um, 
So mm. he would he uh, I think he sent it over to Greg Capullo was the replacement artist, and then he started focusing on the whole baseball card thing, and then the uh, the action figures. McFarland Toys um, was probably the best thing that he ever did. I don't know why he spent so much money on sports memorabilia. I guess he just kind of is a huge obsessive fan. But I was like, dude, save your money. Focus more on those toys, because uh, those monster toys that he did were amazing. Uh huh. Yeah, I remember those. They they were pretty awesome. I mean, you know, it, they were Todd McFarlane artwork basically in 3D, and that that's a pretty awesome thing. Yeah, and it's so. the first step up because we had to deal with you know, <laughs> Kung Fu Grip 3.4 uh, size action figures, you know, and in uh, no no points of articulation whatsoever. And then, uh, you know, he started doing the ones for his own series. He would pick up, I think he also did the Savage Dragon line. But it was in, like, 99 when he picked up, st- I think he got starting lineup, and then he started doing the monster, like the, the Michael Myers, the Crow, you know, those kind of figures. Those mm. were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm remembering, what were the best action figures from my youth? Uh, I don't know. I, I want to say the He-Man, just because they were so deep. Did I need to look at all like two hundred muscles? It's uh, <laughs> a different story, I guess. Yeah, there's a one but, that stunk. Um, the one that yeah, stunk we... so bad. <laughs> Wait, what stunk so bad? Remember, we had a He-Man. You had you had the He-Man toy, I think, that actually stunk really bad. I mean, it was Moss Man or something like that. It just really oh, happened. yeah, yeah. That, that really made no sense. Um, I don't know if it was supposed to. Uh, my theory was that like. Because it started stinking as soon as I got it. Maybe it was supposed to stink like a skunk. But I thought maybe it was just made out of, like, really crappy, like, wet carpet kind of material. Yeah, I think we're going to store it in a baggie. I'm sorry, guys. We're getting sidetracked here. I apologize. Um, so the second series, I think, that came out, and I'm going to be out of order. Some nerd fan's going to be, no, the second series was, mm. it's okay. Just uh, calm down. Uh, Eric Larson's Savage Dragon, which is my absolute favorite uh, uh, comic of that line and still it's, it's a mm. fascinating series I'm just very very far behind it's still going too he has never yeah. uh, sent it out to someone else he has drawn and written every single issue I think they're beyond 200 now that's very cool you know, you know that kind of makes me feel I guess nostalgic and uh, like I like I've missed out on something there because I gave up on all those you know within the first probably 20 issues uh yeah, that's kind of amazing that between him and, and McFarlane, they put out maybe five yeah, the hundred issues or whatever. Yeah, they're the only ones really uh, committed cool. to their comic, but Eric Larson is the one that's like, this is my thing. I don't have any uh, action mm. figures to distract me, no cartoon. Well, he did have a cartoon. It lasted uh, 13 episodes. Not very good. <laughs> um, but he is the one that's like, this is my baby. I am protecting this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I I only read, once again, I gave up too early. I read maybe the first seven issues, uh, but I would agree the writing was was there much more than with most other image uh, series. Yeah, I think uh, the yin-yang of Spawn and Savage Dragon worked perfectly because the darker brooding side was represented by Spawn and the, the fun, wild, crazy stories. Anything could happen. Even though Savage Dragon was very, very violent, <laughs> it was like a love letter to comic books, and they fit re- very well together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny, isn't it, that both of them worked on Spider-Man, and so it was, it kind of felt like Eric Larson with Savage Dragon was, was kind of doing the fun side of Spider-Man, 
and then Todd McFarlane was doing the dark, how how dense can this and how dreary can this artwork be <laughs> aspect of, of Spider-Man. Who did you prefer yeah. on Spider-Man, Eric or Todd? Ah, uh, boy, that that is a tough question. Um, I guess I want to say Todd, but yeah, that that's a tough question. I liked both of them, and uh, but I think I felt like Eric Larson was a little less polished, um, a little less interesting to look at. But he definitely had his own style, and yeah. so I, I did appreciate that. Yeah, I've always been a more Eric Larson fan. Uh, the stories, especially when he finally had the reunion of the Sinister Six, that was one of the most epic stories mm. for me. And I, he's so exciting, so much fun. But you're right; there are so many layers to Todd McFarlane's art. You can't, you can't deny his talent. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one person you can't deny the talent of, and I'm gleefully glad to, is uh, Rob LaField and his body distortion. <laughs> what the hell is going on in half the pictures? Uh, Youngblood was his big uh-huh. series, and that died out, I think, fairly fast, but kept coming back over and over and over. Mm, yeah, I could not stand him. Uh, I think I liked him for the first few months because he was some kind of novelty, and there was, like, a certain, like, tightness of the detail on his early stuff that kind of reminded me in some weird way of Todd McFarlane, but... Yeah, it was like everybody looked wrong. It was like their their arms were twice as wide as they should be, and I, I very quickly got tired of it. And uh, I'm amazed he's still in the industry, to be, to be honest. Well, he still works for Marvel from time to time. He'll come back for a Deadpool special or X-Force. <laughs> I hope it got better. I haven't read anything that he's doing lately, but yeah, he's still in the field too. Um, I think for a while he was trying to do movies. I think he was trying to produce some movies, and that didn't work out. And yeah, so he just came back to comics, but... He also is the only guy to get kicked out of Image. He uh, started Maximum Press, and they thought that he was funneling his Image money into that and using it as a promotion point. So they said, you're, you're out. Oh, wow. Um, hey, there's something I want to mention real quick, which is that I think Rob LaField may have been, along with uh, Keown, may have been the, the greatest example of this, where, uh, uh, well... What Alan Moore and Dave Sim said about it was that uh, going to Image and doing their own thing the way they did was a good example of how uh, um, if you like a character but you want to get paid for it and self-publish it, really all you need to do are change change the name and change what they look like, and it's a new character. And it doesn't, doesn't kind of feel that way, it, uh, you know. It's hard to ignore the fact that a lot of these characters remind you of someone from Marvel. Uh, Pitt is like the Hulk, but Savage Dragon is also kind of like the Hulk. Peter David gave Eric Mm. Larson tons of shit for years about how he ripped off the Incredible Hulk, but if you look at the two, they're nothing alike. Uh, Spawn Mm -hmm. and Spider-Man look kind of similar. Well, it's Spawn and Batman, Mm -hmm. basically. Uh, Shadowhawk. Jim Valentino's Shadowhawk, probably the most underrated of all the original (laughs) core Image comics. I love Shadowhawk, but he also kind of looked like Darkhawk. Yes, absolutely. I forgot that he did Darkhawk. Oh, funny. And Dark... Uh, uh, Well, he did... I think he did a little bit of Darkhawk, but he mostly was known for Guardians of the Galaxy. At that time, it was a very, very different comic than the way you know now, but it was also really hot. Wait, uh, what is Darkhawk like now? Is, is it a lot different? 
Oh no, Guardians of the Galaxy is completely Wait. different. It's uh, it's the the comic book now is very oh. much like the movie. Oh, gotcha. But the old one that you and I used to read was yes. like set in the future and it was a totally different cast. Yes, it really had almost nothing to do with it. Uh, maybe a little bit like um, the Legion of Superheroes in DC. Correct. They've yeah. done it maybe six times and. They just throw up a bunch of people together, and then it's the Legion of Superheroes. Have you yeah, ever read but they Legion don't necessarily. Because I have never read it, and I never got the appeal. <laughs> I this may be odd, but the I think the only Legion of Superheroes I've read are I've read several issues of like the original, like the I've read some '60s issues, and they're not great, but they're they're kind of interesting. I feel like they were probably. Uh, um, they were probably interesting and groundbreaking for the time because it was, you know, this was the early '60s, and here you have a comic that's supposed to take place in 3001. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but they were really they ended up just kind of being like basic little detective stories, like hmm. how is this villain doing that? And then hmm. you know they figure it out by the end, and then they pull off his mask, and no, that's Scooby Doo. But <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Um, yeah. what's the next one? Uh, okay, so we talked about Shadowhawk. Shadowhawk had the balls to not only give their character, I think, A, he was black, B, he was, uh, HIV, and then they killed him off. And then they, uh, that was, like, crazy, and then there was a Shadowhawk 2, a Shadowhawk 3, like, all the following in that line, and I thought that was a ballsy series, but most people don't remember Shadowhawk, and I do not see Jim Valentino very often now in the comics. He usually just does guest stuff. Yeah. You know, by the way, I didn't know that. I, I thought he was just putting out a bunch of miniseries. I didn't know that the characters were, were dying, and I didn't know about the HIV. Yeah, Interesting. I'm pretty sure that's right. It's been a long time. I should revisit that. But I remember it being a really fun series. Well, not fun. Um, how do I say it? It's uh, just exciting. I guess exciting. It was different <laughs> than anything else out there. Whereas there's a, a um, Rob LaField's line, Jim Lee's line with Wildcats, and Mark Silvestri with Cyberforce, they all kind of seemed like X-Men comics, you know? It's just, that's the only thing that really bugged me. I did not get into those. But you were a fan of Wildcats, correct? Um, yes, I kind of was. I, I, uh, but you know, honestly, it might have been partly just speculation. Yeah. I know about, like, five issues of the, uh, five copies of the first issue, and, um, it was definitely... It was one of the more visually interesting series that the early image put out. It was just so colorful. It was it was very colorful, and it was drawn by Jim Lee. And so in that way, it felt like, what's not to like? Except that the uh, story was just kind of generic superheroes doing CIA missions kind yeah. of stuff. But... It wasn't until later. <laughs> I think when he finally came around about five or six years later, right before he sold it to DC is when he finally got a hook into what he wanted to say about it. And then he just said, oh, I'm selling mm. DC. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to be an executive anymore. But uh, I think Grifter has been pretty much everybody's favorite character from that line because he's the only one that's not uh, part of the alien race. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, he's he's pretty popular. I actually like him. I have, I have a few comics yeah, he got uh, from last few years. Universe now. He's in the same world mm -hmm. as Batman. Yeah, that always really freaks me out when they do that. It, <laughs> it always feels wrong somehow. Yet, oddly yeah. enough, do you feel that way with Charlton? Yeah. Because, is it because we never read the Charlton comics? Is we're not bugged by Blue Beetle and Captain Adam being in that universe? Yeah, that that's a funny thing where I didn't notice it when I was younger because I, yeah, I had simply no idea. But now that I know, uh, like, reading uh, Crisis was 
you know, a, a very good wake up call to all that. And uh, the more I like have seen back issues of the sixties and seventies Charlton, uh, those characters are feeling all wrong to me now. <laughs> <laughs> when, it, yeah, funny. Uh, Mark Sylvester uh, has Cyber Force, which um, is one that I could not get into. It seemed very strange to me, and it wasn't up my alley. But did you ever read Cyber Force? Uh, just briefly, like the first three issues, and it was, was kind of like, yeah, it was kind of like robots that are also almost like serpents. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get into that either. <laughs> and the one that I never even read, because, uh, I gotta tell you, I was not a fan. I knew that he was highly stylized, and he had a cult following, but I could not get into Will's Portatio for anything. Uh, Wetworks <laughs> was not, that was one of those, I was like, well, it's delayed, I could care less. <laughs> Yeah, I really liked Will Portatio, but um, it was very different. It was like when you were looking at his art, it was like there were almost like all these lines layered over the person you were looking at. Yeah. So he just, he made you really look at the art to the point where you kind of didn't see what was going on sometimes. I'm, that probably wasn't a good thing, I guess. <laughs> I wonder if I revisit it that I'll, I'll re appreciate his work any differently because, uh, you know, he was on X Factor. And I remember seeing it going, what the hell am I looking at? You were getting a very unusual style where he was putting layers over layers over layers. Um, and I, I'm sure that I won't like Wetworks, uh, but I, I should go revisit his X-Factor run. Because that's a comic that I think was severely underappreciated. I think it was more of a critical darling and a cult following, whereas X-Men got all the glory. But X-Factor was a really solid idea. And they did very well for a long time until they added Strong Guy. You know, they got rid of everybody and they added this weirdo cast. And they're like, what the hell is this? This isn't the X-Factor I know. What do I care? <laughs> Multiple Man, Jimmy mm -hmm. Madrix. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I enjoyed X-Factor. And especially during the Sportatio. But, you know, I say that. But, yeah, I feel like, once again, I probably only read the first couple issues of Sportatio. And then kind of bought the rest and bagged them. Uh, which is sad yeah. that so much, so many of us are doing that kind of crap, uh, buying things because of the artists and not necessarily even reading it. I, I wonder if people really understand that today. You you know, I think most of today's comic readers actually read the comics. Yeah. But yeah, during that speculative phase, there was some weird, weird stuff going on. There's so many that were bagged that you were afraid, <laughs> yeah. terrified to open. You're like, God, I want to read this, but. Oh, the price is going to come down, you know, and, and every <laughs> single month there was one of these special, you know, even Nomad, a character that nobody even remembers anymore, except for probably you and I, uh, you know, he had a special edition that was like, oh, you got to buy a 500 copy, you know, I, mean, I think Bill and Ted even came bagged, it was bagged or boarded or die cut, foil, glow in the dark, everything was just bananas, I just opened up, um, what is it? Uh, Midnight Suns. Do you remember this? It was the one. Mm, was a, yes. It was part of that whole uh, Ghost Rider series. But uh, who's the vampire again in the Marvel Universe? What's his name? Uh, Morbius? Morbius. Yeah. yeah. So that's what. It was part of the Midnight Suns storyline, but it was Morbius number one. And it was in the special bag. Mm. with, And they put art all over the bag, too. And you're like, why did you mm. even. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, why'd you even give me this when I'm so clearly not even supposed to open it? Yeah, it's right? just, oh, well, a collector later will buy it, but why? Why would the collector buy it? Because yeah. he wants to open it, too. <laughs> is it just, is, do you think there's an entire generation of comics just cycling around? Mm. Uh, it's still bagged, still bagged, still bagged. 
Yeah, I, I would say there's probably still almost half a million copies of uh, the Death and Resurrection of Superman out there that are still bagged. Yeah, and you, know, you have most of them. them. You have most of them. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my few really good ideas during the 90s was to buy a bunch of copies. Yeah, I think you sold most of them. Of the Death you? of you Superman. Uh, but yeah, no, yeah, I sold just about all of them. Um, yeah, that was one of the first, one of the few things that worked out well, and it was one of the first things that I bought a lot of copies of, so unfortunately, it reinforced the idea that I should do that, (laughs) yeah, and there was a big event, and that just got worse and worse, so. So the problem with Image Comics in the beginning was, while it was a huge celebrity bonanza, people were selling millions and millions of copies, these guys were late uh, uh, on a regular basis, uh, they almost immediately started handing it out to other artists, which is destroying the point of usually why you bought it, because the story usually was not there to keep you going. I think Rob LaFeel was smart, though, because he did hire, like, Alan Moore to take over on Supreme and some other comics. Uh, so, um, what is standing right now is Top Cow still goes. Uh, they were very, very hot in the late 90s because of Witchblade and the Darkness. Uh, Fathom was really good, but it was always kind of late. Uh, poor Michael Turner. The guy was like 33, one of the hottest artists in the world. Uh, came out of Top Cow and dies so young of cancer, and it's just like, what? Mm, yeah, yeah, that was shocking. Uh, Jim Lee sold to DC, so everything's been absorbed there. Um, I don't know what's going on with Jim Valentino's uh, universe. Uh, Rob LaField mm-hmm. keeps going in and out of business. <laughs> so you'll see Deadpool, or not Deadpool, uh, Young Blood probably in a couple weeks here, and then he'll die and come back again. Uh, Eric mm. Larson's still going strong. He was the head of Image Comics for a while, and he was smart enough to know mm. I want to go back and focus on the writing. He handed over to someone new, and mm. uh, Todd McFarlane's still going. Wells Portacio, no clue. I have no idea what's mm. going on with that guy. <laughs> uh, what it. about Dale Keown? Dale Keown, I have not seen him. I haven't seen yeah. most of the heroes of our youth working. I don't mm-hmm. see Ron Lim, I don't see M.D. Bright. Uh, a lot of these guys mm. that we used to read their stuff, you just, they're, I have no idea where they are. Mm-hmm. That, that's a good question. Um, I kind of wonder how many of them, it, you know, there could be quite a few of them in Dire Straits, and there's the, yeah. uh, what is it, Heroes? Yeah, Hero Initiative, oh, which I believe Jim yeah. Valentino is now one of the heads of Hero Initiative, and it's mm-hmm. a group, it's a great group. It is set up so that people who uh, work in the comic book industry who fall on hard times, either through you know like medical issues or they just can't find any work, it it mm-hmm. raises money for them. And I think annually they put together a big comic book that has artwork and writing by some of these artists that haven't been around for a while. True, some of them do move on to other yeah. fields, but uh, there are some guys out there who just need help. And uh, if you're interested, go to Hero Initiative, donate whatever you can and uh you know do it for the artists that you grew up on that you love support them mm-hmm. and uh the the specials they put out are usually pretty good too and uh i bought several of them so yes i would right. suggest that as, as well okay <laughs> so image comics obviously is a, a, a history that you should know especially if you're trying to understand where they came from and where they are now they're so insanely different and i, I love what they're doing right now uh, all that speculation is gone, all the fanfare and the celebrity status. It is just about the stories, <laughs> you know, and uh, that's that's what comic books should be about. Yes. I, you know, 
how are they doing in the industry? I wonder. Are they like are they number three right they, now? They were number three, and then after all that disastrous, you know, late shipments and stuff like that, they fell apart. Dark Horse mm-hmm. swooped in. Valiant swooped in. Um, Valiant mm. is interesting because they've gone in and out of success so many times. So right <laughs> now, I think Dark Horse still has number three. Um, IDW, mm. I believe, is number four, and Image is five. But IDW and um, Image switch a lot. Okay. Yeah, I almost wouldn't think that because Image uh, just seems to be coming out with so many new, pretty good series. Uh, but I guess the sales must not be huge. Well, but that's okay, as long period. as the quality. Yeah, comic book yeah. sales period aren't that strong. But now, it's weird. They say they're not that strong, but if you look, there are more people in the business right now, uh, you know, company-wise, <laughs> than I've ever seen before. I just mentioned maybe four or five of those companies and uh mm-hmm. half of them are up here in oregon i kid you not there's so many companies up here huh? in, in washington and oregon i lived actually uh a block away from dark horse comics it was amazing um <laughs> did you know that did you even know that i lived right around the corner yeah i yes i remember you telling me about that and i, I think uh i think you were trying to work for them I was, in some was capacity i was too <laughs> old and they're like you can't have an internship you're not in college like give me a job Ah, that's too bad. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, Image is not going to go away any day soon, especially with the the fact that they focused on their own stuff instead of spending tons of money on licenses. That's a lot of these independent companies do. They go out there and they spend most of their budget on getting a license, and then you read it going, yeah, I love this, but the art sucks. Yeah. Yeah, there's several that that's their entire strategy. Uh, IDW, well, they're a little both. They do their own stuff, but then they... They do buy a lot of licenses. That's what um, Dark Horse but yes. thrived on for a long time. Now they don't have Star Wars. Yeah. I wonder how well they're doing. I don't know. That's true. I, you know, they still own a lot of little minor stuff, I'm sure, like, uh, you know, Predator, Aliens, uh, lots of movie things. But yeah. I don't know. They might be slipping. Yeah, they have Hellboy. They have, I think mm-hmm. they still have Grendel. Um, but other than mm-hmm. that, I'm not sure. We should explore Dark Horse Comics on an episode as well. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> we're going a little long. Let's wrap it up with Image here. Um <laughs> I say check out Savage right. Dragon. It is still going very strong. Eric Larson's giving it his all. Uh, anything from Robert Kirkman, who, by the way, I should mention, took over for uh, Rob LaField. They knew when he was working at Marvel and Image at the same time, they knew that that was the guy who had the future of Image in his mind and said, hey, we will make you one of the co-owners, but you have to be exclusive to us. And he's been creating just awesome comics now for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think I would suggest... Just for the fun of it, go check out the very earliest image stuff. Uh, a lot of it you can find in like the fifty cent bins. <laughs> that's um, not a high price. You're yeah. talking more like quarter bins. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of unusual in that you're, in a way, you're reading comics that were done by by superstars, sort of celebrities at the time, and uh, they they may not be great, but if you keep that in mind, that they might be more interesting. And yeah. Yeah, all right, so check us out on Art's Facebook. usually under... pretty good. Oh, <laughs> At least. I, I apologize. I walked over you. <laughs> oh, no, I think I was done. Okay. Go for uh, it. Check it out on Facebook under Retro Rocket Entertainment. If these episodes are popular enough, we'll build a, a separate page for it, and we'll share some comic book news there. Um, <laughs> William, go ahead and plug. Plug away. Uh, and check out my podcast called Comics I Read to You. It's at comicsireadtoyou.podcast, or podcast, podbean. <laughs> dot com uh and my twitter is at zen monster media all right everybody 
And uh, I guess let's say goodbye. I don't know what we'll do for the third episode. We're going to surprise you because I'm kind of winging it. Um, I think it'll be Secret Wars. Uh, but we're going to kind of throw in episodes. And we won't do all the episodes together, me and William. Uh, he'll have some guests on his sh- side and I'll have guests on my side. And then we'll come back together like every other week or every other episode and uh, share some stuff with you. I'm rambling again. Um, be excellent to each other, everybody. Have a good night. Thank you, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Welcome to another episode of Stumbling Towards Adulthood. Uh, you know, if you haven't listened to the show before, a quick explanation. We basically examine and uh, basically uh, chat for a little while about certain important things in your life, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s. It could be anywhere between like, ah, oh, these shoes were awesome and they faded away, or my favorite kind of music, stuff like that, uh, or embarrassing situations. This episode, as you can tell from that opening music, we're going to discuss MTV, when they actually still played music videos. I'm your host, Michael, and Tony is my uh, co-host. How's it going, Tony? Hello, hi. How you doing, man? All right, except for some reason, I feel like in my head I have the intro ready, and then the minute I hit record, it just disappears. And I'm like, what was I going to say? <laughs> Terrible at this sometimes. Ah. All right, everybody, it is hot as shit here, so I'm going to open a window real quick. Yeah, oh, it is. Please. What's that? Yeah, it's really humid here on the East Coast as well. Yeah. I'm not sure what it's like on the, uh, on the coast for you. but What was it, Lewis Black joke? That, you, know, you know it's hot when you have to step outside and go, I think I need to put deodorant on my balls. <laughs> um, so you and I are kind of in the same boat where we didn't experience MTV when it was like everybody was talking about it. Like that first decade was really a part of our life. Well, yes and no. I mean, I never had it, but uh, my grandparents had it. So, like, you know, I had a hard time, like, keep, you know, as a kid. I, I was around when it first came out. It was, like, a big deal. I heard about it. And then when I would only have – I'd have to wait till I go to my grandparents' house to watch it because they had cable. They didn't watch it, but it came, you know, came pretty ready on their, their cable box. But, I mean, like, I, I didn't – I mean, I, I kind of heard some new music, but it was basically whatever somebody was playing in the box, like, around my, like, my low-income housing apartments that I lived in. Yeah. So I heard, like, you know. Disco Duck or Shaka Khan, you know, and stuff like that. But I, I didn't know there was like like videos. So like when I would watch MTV, it's like it was brand new music I never heard for the first time, and it's also like accompanying videos blew my freaking mind. Yeah, I think you for know? me it was always the so top like, you know, forty. Like, you know, we had that top forty radio where you'd hear all the popular songs, and people were like, "Yo, the video for this is great." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" 
Well, also, I was at the mercy of whatever my mom played in the car. So she played a lot of classic rock. What's I'm not complaining. I, I, I like classic rock. But I didn't really have any, like, any concept of new music. You know, kids were like, you know, you know, you know new music. Like, I've been, I just listened to Doors and Pink Floyd because my, my mom listened to. <laughs> Occasionally, like, you know, The Temptations and The Beatles or something. But, but yeah. uh, you might want to listen to something from this decade, dude. You know? <laughs> oh, it was always like Air Supply. And at best, I'd get Foreigner. Every once in a while, I'd get something weird in our family. Like, my parents always bought music. So you'd get maybe a Van Halen. A Motley Crue, but for the most part, it was just like, oh, Jack Wagner, okay. And you guys don't listen to Jack Wagner, all right. Um, you guys <laughs> listen to Bread, America, uh, Queen? Okay, Queen, okay, that's still good, all right. I remember, like, he's like, the song needs to come on the radio from the Blue Oyster Cult, like, I'm burning, I'm burning, I'm burning for you. He used to make my skin crawl. To this day, I can't, I can't even, just me singing those, those couple of, couple of bars, just like, gave me douche chills. I hated that song so much as a kid. I uh, I think that would make an excellent ska song. If you sped it up a little bit and added horns to it, I don't know why. I just hear ska to it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I would experience it at my uncle's house, who is only actually a little bit older than me, and, you know, he was with my grandparents, and they paid for it. Of course, they never watched M- uh, MTV, and they he would record, like, uh, two or three hours of it and give it to us, and I... It blows my mind that there's so few videos being played back then. Because I think it was a four-hour block he recorded once. And I'm like, holy shit, how many times can you play Don't Be Cruel by Cheap Trick? Or Don't yeah, Worry, Be Happy. Same, 20, same video like 20 times, yeah. They only have a certain amount. Especially, especially in the early days. Like, you know what I mean? The early 80s. Yeah. It was like, you know, the Bugles, of course. Video killed the radio star. And then, like, you know, maybe, like, uh, you know, Billy Idol's White Wedding. I think, uh, uh, they, they, I, I think it was the Tubes that uh, they had a video that was, like, were they like on some kind of uh, roller coaster or some shit? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. well, the Tubes were always, like, these guys that played in the background on a movie. And, and you're like, oh, yeah, I know that song. They sing this? Huh? <laughs> yeah, that one song that was a video, I was like, one in a million girls. I was like, <laughs> Well, Not one of my favorites, but that was one of the videos that they played on heavy rotation. Well, there's there's bands that would not have made it, I don't think, if it wasn't for MTV. You really think Flock of Seagulls would have got very far if they weren't so insanely stylish? Those songs are catchy. Let's not deny them a couple hits there. But the image yeah, yeah. started to take over. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. That, that's when you really started using your, your image to, uh, to, 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 sell, to sell music. You know, um, I guess before you would just re- uh, rely on, on print ads, you know what I mean? But, you know, like, I guess if you were a teeny bopper, you know, then you'd be like in Tiger Beat or something. But besides that, <laughs> Bob really would just, yeah, you really just uh, decide, you decide on the music whether or not you like the artist. But this, this like, you know, gave, uh, gave people a whole different way to judge them, maybe fairly sometimes, maybe unfairly based on their appearance, you know. Well, I think the 70s was more about the singer-songwriter. Actually, the 60s were about that, too. Singer-songwriter, and, you know, you could be ugly as... Your face could look like an old boot, and no one would care because all they could really tell was, like, oh, one appearance on American Bandstand, you know, something like that, one of those variety shows would be the best thing you get to, like, seeing them perform. But then all of a sudden, MTV comes out, everybody's young, everybody's hip, hairspray sales went through the roof. Yeah, if you had stock in Aquanet back then, you were you're a millionaire. <laughs> the moose was a thing. Do they still use moose? Is that on the shelf? It still exists. I don't think people use it as much. But yeah, it's, uh, it was everybody was just tons of hair gel. Either your hair was greased back like Wall Street, or it was all hair sprayed out like you know poison and <laughs> stuff like that. Well, tons of products. Yeah, in the early 80s, the early eighties was like like you were like making shapes, so it was like giant 
porcupine spikes or it's yeah. like the little uh whatever whatever the lead singer of flock seagulls is doing <laughs> that little kind of little whatever that uh that uh that one lock in the middle that's like a point going down you know yeah have you ever seen streets of fire with um uh william defoe and michael Perret? oh it sounds familiar it's it's like set in the fifties, but now it's kind of it's a weird movie. It's like rockabilly punk uh, action film, and uh, William Defoe's hairdo is almost to the T like the guy from Flock of Seagulls. It's very strange. It just doesn't <laughs> come out as far. <laughs> yeah, because he had like the sides kind of like look, looking like an owl, and the front part uh, kind of like almost like uh, what's the, what's that band where they had the one lock down the middle? Shit, Misfits. Um, Misfits. There you go. That one like almost not quite as long as that giant devil lock down the middle but like you know you had the uh, the owls on the on the uh, on the owl wings on the side and that thing and of course you know the guy no longer has his hair he wear the hat if you've ever seen him on yeah yeah well, know, that's, that's, all... every time you watch one of the, one of those where are they now kind of thing and they always focus on those one hit wonder guys of the 80s they're always in their backyard with a hat on because all the hair is falling out and they have an acoustic yeah. guitar playing uh playing their one hit song it's always the same thing yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think Flock Seagulls may have one or two B sides. Didn't get any MTV play for that matter, but they got a little, a little radio play. But yeah, I mean, that that uh, that the one major hit was uh, was what was it called again? Shit, I'm like having a major brain uh, fart. Oh, they so far but, away. Well, they had Space right Love yeah. song was a big hit too. Yeah, yeah. But um, Devo, uh, for MTV watchers, Devo was huge. They probably had like ten hits. But if you looked at the top 40, they had one major hit and one minor hit. And that was it. That was all there was. And, you know, I'm a huge I, Devo fan. But when I look back, I'm like, wow, they really weren't that mainstream. Well, they were like, they had a cult, a really cult, they were like a cult phenomenon for a while. And I think they had like a whole Honda scooters promotion with those little, um, those little helmet hats they used to wear. Yeah. And that was like a whole thing. They were like. And, you know, they, they were like, uh, they're really big for, for like a short window. But I remember that Whip It video, and when he whipped that girl's clothes off, I was like, ooh, naughty. You know, I know. Like, like, I first thought, what am I watching? Hello. <laughs> like, yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the fact that MTV uh, started grabbing the niche, the, the, the smaller genres that weren't really getting the exposure in the top 40. This is where you could go to get heavy metal. I mean, Headbangers Ball. Uh, before Headbangers Ball, you know, it was like, you know, the sword and sorcery kind of like uh, power metal of Iron Maiden and Ozzy and stuff like that. And those first few videos, really low budget, obviously, but they captured yeah, yeah. something of that dark world you would enter. Yeah, and it was really like, I mean, they got like almost zero radio, radio play. And it wasn't like, you know, MTV primarily was just major like top 40. Um, you know, maybe, and then maybe some lesser known top 40, but like, yeah, but then I guess. A public outcry like, "Hey man, I want to hear my music, the stuff I'm into." And I was saying, "Muscle, I saw these like, yeah, these these niche genres for uh, these uh, subsets of pop music. You know, your heavy metal, and then later uh, rap, uh, you know, TV raps. You know, which is the yeah. best. I love the Ed Lover dance. Do you remember this? Oh, iconic, man." Hits to go twice one way and then the other way. What's that? But like, yeah, like shake, uh, push his hips out one way and then the other way. And yeah. it's like his <laughs> Just hand let me clear my throat. Oh. <laughs> I loved MTV raps. I uh, I grew up in the city mm -hmm. and so did you. 
So it didn't seem strange that all these music genres were mixing together. That was just part of your society, you know? It's like a mix of every race and every type of person. And uh, so I listened to hip-hop pretty early on. I think the first song that I really got exposed to um, was Ice-T on the Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo album, which uh, <laughs> anybody remembers those movies? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, and, and, and Crush Groove was a big one. Uh, also had a lot of... Yeah, had a, a lot of MTV tie-ins, you know, with like Run DMC and um, L Cool J. Uh, I'm trying to think. I think Crush Group had, um, if I remember correctly, I think the Fat, Bo- Fat Boys were in there too, and they had that song "All You Can Eat, All You Can Eat." <laughs> I had the, I had those Fat Boy albums. I had the first like three. I had a, when Fresh Prince came out with "Parents Don't Understand." I was like, "Holy shit, what is this? This is like tailor made to my sensibilities." Yeah, I, I should have realized it back then, but I was like, you know, what a gimmick. Okay, I get it. You're fat and you like to eat. Come on. Don't be so one-dimensional. But back then, I was like, man, this is the shit. Yeah, they're fat, but they're... <laughs> they made, they made <laughs> like, like two movies. Want. I mean, Disorderlies. I, Do you remember Disorderlies? I've, I've seen it. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like they were so popular at the time that a Warner Brothers said, yeah, sure, let's give them $5 million to make whatever they want. That movie is terrible. If I remember correctly, wasn't like wasn't the commissioner from like the police kind of movies in there, or the, uh, the dad from Punky Brewster? Uh, no, I think it was Ralph Bellamy, one of the brothers from um, uh, Trading Places. Oh, okay, never mind. But no, it would make sense because I think one of the fat—I I might be really wrong on this—one of the fat boys was in Citizens on Patrol, so that might be why you're thinking of that. Possibly, possibly, yeah. I <laughs> just. Some, some random old white guy, whatever. <laughs> or, 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 or Conrad Bain. I don't know. I get them all confused. Yeah. Um, you know, besides the music videos, we had uh, some of the original programming started popping up in the late 80s. We had uh, Remote Control being the first thing I think really triggered, like, whoa, what original content? Huh? I mean, unfortunately, as great as it was, kind of signaled the beginning of the end of music. We just didn't realize it because then that's all it started, it eventually became. But that was that was really awesome. And of course, you had Colin Quinn and Adam Sandler made all these hilarious cameos on there. What like for, for like certain game segments? Yeah, and, and um, Colin Quinn and Dennis Leary, of course. Yeah, those those guys are great. And it was it was entertaining and it was funny and it was like you felt like it was a game show for you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I like it's that like, part you know, at the end. Do you remember at the very end of the game they had those six screens with like little clips? You had to get those clips in a certain pattern or whatever in order to win. I haven't seen the show in a while, but I feel like that was how you won. That was like the lightning round or whatever. That was towards the end. You got to like nail them all off. And I don't know if you get all of them or how many you have to get to like win the take home prize or whatever. And but, probably uh, the yeah. Nintendo version of Remote Control, which I had and I played to death. I love that NES game. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, it was. Of course, it, I, yeah. It's probably the first thing from MTV to really break out, and I guess that's why they started moving towards original programming. What bugged me was um, there's probably a thousand music videos out there, but they were always recycling the same top 20, and I'm like, why are you doing this? Why do you feel like you need to repeat? I mean, yes, some of these are more popular than others. Like Thriller, I get why you play it so much, but there's a huge yeah. catalog of videos out there, and then someone told me, well, they pay for them. When they're only gonna buy the stuff they think will be watched, I'm like, oh shit, that's how really? Yeah. You think there'd be a share yeah, thing? Like the labels would make the videos and say, hey, here you go, this is free. Uh, it helps promote us and it gets people to watch your channel. Why the hell would you pay for a video? I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure how, how it works either. I mean, I guess they only play certain things so much. So even if somebody like, even if something was uh, way more popular than the others, so you would think that would that would get played more, but you can only you know, 
can't be playing the same thing over and over again or every five minutes. You kind of have to. Kind of, I guess it has that work similar to like how how radio stations would work as far as I mean, you can't. Um, you have to have some kind of a, you know diversity in your music selection yeah. if you want to get like a wider cast of net for wider variety of listeners. Because it wasn't like a, like a niche radio station. Like oh, this is the uh, this is the R and B station or this is like you know this is the pop station. You're trying to want to like you know get as many eyes on the screen as you can. Well, it's um. And, I think that's why Alternative Nation really uh, broke out. Of all those shows, MTV Raps was pretty popular. Um, Headbangers Ball, I think, kind of was popular for a short while and kind of faded away. But 120 minutes was that thing that everybody was like, oh, hold on a second. This is where you're getting the, the next level, the new wave of music. Yeah, and that was like the, the, that was like the, the transition from what would be considered new wave to alternative and um, quote-unquote alternative. But uh, yeah, and that was the only way. I mean, because this is like pre-internet day, like there was no way I could. There's no other way I could hear like new music. You know, the, like I was, I wasn't a college kid, so I didn't hear like, hey, check out this, check out this rare import I got. You know, I'm I'm a kid, so this is the only way I could hear like, like music that I was into, like music with an edge. Yeah. You know, and that was and that that was and it was you know it was, I mean I don't know how new it was. It was new to me. You know, which was which was which was great. And then the stuff you could not hear. There's no way you could hear on on any of the radio stations that I was aware. Well, I think it's the first time any of us heard REM. You know that uh, this is the end of the world as we know it. You know, and I can't remember the rest of it. But, you know that stuff, and then you start hearing like um, uh, the Pixies and uh, who is it? Uh, Frank Black or yeah, Frank Black. That, that was that was Pixies. That yeah. was Pixies. Okay, then I'm thinking of some. Yeah. But you know, you find the bands that were like on college radio. You know, they were getting exposure right. on 120 minutes. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't hear quote unquote college rock anywhere else. So yeah, so it's certainly bands like R. And the Pixies, they might be Giants, you know, that kind of stuff. It wasn't played anywhere else. You could not find that anywhere else in the dial, you know. And, um, Hello? it's okay. Sorry, my phone went off. Right. Funny. Um, the other thing that I thought was cool was, you know, kids could get their news from Kurt Loder and, uh, what was it, Tabitha Soren? I think that's her name. Tabitha you know, Soren, you got it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where we got our news from. And it wasn't always just music news, it wasn't always movie news. It was like, what's going on in the world? And they always had those specials. Um, you know, like in the life of or thirty minutes, you know, and, and stuff like that was really important. Kurt Loader was so awesome because he wouldn't tolerate any bullshit, and he would actually kind of rip into people sometimes. Yeah, no, he he, he was like a legit journalist. It's, it's same with Tabitha Starter for that matter. He wasn't just like just like a DJ reading the news. You know what I mean? He was like you know like a, a for real like, like legit journalist. So yeah, he 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 did take his position pretty seriously. Yeah, and it's uh, I'm, I'm sure he doesn't work there anymore. I haven't seen MTV in years. Have you? Oh, God, no. If we knew what the real world was going to bring to MTV and change, I think, to that kind of show, oh, I would have I would have told everybody, don't watch it, let it bomb! It's just, it's just, it's super overproduced. It's like, it's so, super, everything is super staged, all these scenarios. So, like, it's like this, you know, this faux reality TV, it's just, it's just ridiculous. I mean, and, uh, yeah, and then, like, exactly. But while, if all while they're, they're playing just, like, music, like, after 9 o'clock, I don't even think they do that anymore. And yeah. now they have all these other, like, they have, like, an MTV2. They and I think MTV, maybe an MTV3. Do, is there an MTV3? Because I know MTV2 I, started off with all music videos, so I started watching that instead. And they started bringing over reruns uh, and stuff like that. I was like, oh, all right. Right, right. Then they started playing, like, the, the B-reel of shows on a day. I'm like, wait, what's going on? And then, <laughs> so I think they had, I think they came up with another MTV, like, an MTV3 that played just music, as far as I know. But that was, was like, I don't even remember. The last time I had cable was on I couldn't even tell you. Well, you now it's been like forever ago. VH1 Classics moved over to being MTV Classics, which 
kind of sucks because now I gotta watch all this shit from the '90s. Is why I watched, I, why I stopped watching MTV. Ugh. Yeah. I think it, it was yeah, by TRL. I think TRL was like that final nail in the coffin. I was like, shit, how many times are you gonna play Backstreet Boys? Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that just became. Well, there were some other kind of like top uh, twenty show. I think Adam Curry used to like uh, used to do every week. Yeah, it was. Adam and Curry. Uh, that was. There was somebody after them. There was a kind of a guy with brown hair and, and kind of big gap teeth, and there was a girl with them, and it was right before TRL launched. That was like for five or six years. Oh, uh, yeah. The guy's name is John something or other. I know yeah, you're talking about. I remember. But uh, he also did news segments, too. But, I, I, yeah, I know what you're saying. And then, um, yeah, and then that kind of uh, went, went to uh, bit the dust. And then, yeah, then when Cross Daily and TRL, and that was like the beginning of the internet. That's like kind of when I started to stop watching it. The only time yeah. I liked TRL was when he would have a guest on, and it was always awkward. I don't know how the hell Carson Daly got his own TV show. I think it's even still on, but his interviews were the shittiest. He's like, you got a new album, right? Yeah, cool. Yeah, he's good? just... Uh, <laughs> I, I know he's doing The Voice now. I, I think his show's gone, though. I'm pretty oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, that, that talk show he had is gone. Yeah, and then they started, what, uh, MTV Sports with um, Dan Cortez. Uh, Dan Cortez, like, what is this? <laughs> but I watched it, and I'm like, all right, let's watch this. Because, you know, there wasn't a shitload else on. And then and then they had the, the rock and jocks, the ba- baseball and the baseball. Right, and at right. first, that was for, it was it was kind of entertaining at first, and it kind of got stale in a while. The, uh, what was the other thing? I, on the comedy scene, though, they did really well. I thought, did you ever watch Idiot Box with Alex Winter? That was, that was yeah, that was one of my favorite, like, non-music-related shows on uh on mtv that was real, like eddie eddie the flying gimp <laughs> i remember that one <laughs> so ridiculous it's so what? ridiculous like this is hilarious yeah he was he, he was i not, that was like before he was on bill and ted too uh it and was, was, like, it, was after, it was after the first bill and ted but before the oh, second God. one and uh they did okay Freaked. did you ever see that one the movie freaked well no i didn't see that one uh it's from the same guys that did idiot box so alex winter and tom stern i want to say uh, they did Idiot Box, and then they got so much buzz from that, they stopped the show, they went and did Freaked, Fox was like giving all of them this money, they did this merchandising, they did a comic book of it, it was going to be a big summer release, and then the guy got fired, and someone new came in at Fox, watched the movie, and goes, what is this shit, and then dumped it in like 20 screens, and that was it. It's it's kind of hard to find, but it's really, really good. Oh, it's called Freaked, F-R-E-A-K-E-D? Yeah. Let's see if I can find that on YouTube or somewhere else. Yeah, check. I'll uh, try to find yeah. it for you. It's so good. I, I only remember two skits from Box, even though I used to watch all the time. It must fucking shot. But I remember uh, Eddie the Flying Gift, which is so ridiculous. It was hilarious. And then um, it was basically like uh, he had a guy with a sweatshirt over his, like, kind of like, kind of like similar to Beavis and Cornholio. Yeah. And like a, you know, goofy ass teeth. And then he had, the, had this one guy, the guy with dotted lines that came out of his eyes. And it's like, you know, so it, they. So everybody could see what he was gazing at. It was always some chick's tits or ass. And he was like, <laughs> oh my God, he's ruining my life. So he got like a lobotomy and they like the the, uh, the dots were going off into the space and he couldn't see what he was looking at anymore. Well, uh, that's not the end of it. There was a show a few years after that called MTV Smells Funny where they took clips from Idiot Box. And uh, before The State was on, there was a TV show called You Wrote It, You Watch It with the cast of The State and Jon Stewart. And they did that and... Um, do you remember, uh, I think it was Red Johnny and the Fat Guy? Or Red Johnny and the Round Guy? No. Um, I remember Randy, Randy the Redwoods. Randy the Redwoods, <laughs> holy crap. Yeah, Jim Turner. <laughs> he was great in that. Well, that's where we first experienced Polly Shore, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very true. And that, and then he took, some, some of these personalities took on a life of their own. 
yeah, and then uh, of course she went on that superstardom. Yeah, right. And you know, started off as a DJ, then she went off to Club MTV. Oh, and then there and was then, the other uh, Julie Brown. I forgot they had two Julie Browns, which is weird. Uh, the one was comedic, and the other one was more like wah 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 wah. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Julie Brown was like, I want to say like red-haired white girl. Yeah. With um, kind of, kind of a nice rap. Pardon me if I sound sexist, but hey, it's there. Hey, enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, some of these guys really broke out, and especially with the comedy stuff, it was kind of like that next revolution. The Saturday Night Live guys uh, were kind of fading away. This is before, like, you know, Adam Sandler and David Spade and all them revived the show. Uh, so MTV right. came in with this whole new attitude. That's why Dennis Leary and, um, you know, uh, uh, Pauly Shore came out, because they, they were, like, kind of rebellious, new voice. Uh, John Stewart started off mm. with MTV, and, you know, it's just amazing the guys that started there and really, you know, took off. Yeah, and that's before Comedy Central was around too. So John Stewart, like, uh, had his his old talk show. That well, sorry, for the Hot Network, which eventually became Comedy Central, was uh, was out. Yeah, and it, yeah, John John Stewart was a great great personality. Yeah, but I can't remember the guy's name, but he was on that um that one show. <laughs> we used on that one show with the guy. No, it's not like a re- retard, but um, oh god, he would, he played like a cab driver, like this recurring skit on MTV. Oh right, right, uh, right. Cab, yeah. Sideburns, you know what I mean? He was like. With some weird accent. What was that? Uh, he, he was so greasy in that, and of course he showed up. Donald Logue, that's his name. Hey, that's his name. And uh, you know, the funny thing is, if you were comedic, you took off. If you were just a straight-up BJ, guarantee you, you had maybe two, three years, and then nobody ever saw you again. I have no idea oh, yeah, what was, happened to all these people. Those guys had a short life. They're totally, totally dispensable, and they were constantly... Constantly like uh, re- renewing, renewing with other 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 VJs. Like you know, I guess they had like maybe a year, maybe two tops. Like we gotta get some fresh blood in here. You get too old, too old kids. Get out of here. Get out of here, Gramps. <laughs> Do you remember the uh, contest? You know, to be a new VJ, and they and they got it down to Dave Holmes, who was clearly the correct choice. And, yeah, uh, the most qualified. <laughs> yeah, and he's and still that, around today. He still hosts that show on FX. Yeah. Yeah, and then there was that. Yeah, I seen him in other stuff too. Yeah, he does like um, he, he gets work. He does like you know, announcing stuff. A lot, a lot of MC work. But and then you um, who yeah, won? then it was yeah that skinny Jesse guy, right? <laughs> oh my god, it was it was like a train wreck. We're all watching it at school, and I'm just like, this guy is barely coherent. He's the lead singer in a band because I can't tell what he's saying. He's like, hey everybody, how's it going? I'm coming out next to this. Yeah, maybe, but it was such an. It was, well, I I heard people who knew him in his high school like they got, they got around. It was heard it was such an act. He doesn't talk like that at all. Yeah. It was all just phony bullshit. <laughs> to sell a yeah, it's weird that uh, if you're a VJ, you have a very small window of success. Some of those people have come back, like the original core group, like those first five or six VJs. Everybody knows them. And you usually hear them, like, on those oldies, 80s stations. Like, you hear on XM, oh, 80s radio, and it's like, uh, Martha uh, Quinn. I was like Martha Coolidge. Quinn. Yeah, and, 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 you know, some of the other ones, Adam Curry and stuff like that. Um, the one guy, I can't remember his name, um, he was, like, a white guy, kind of like a, a curlyish fro, but, like, longer. Uh, I can't, his name's gonna, gonna bug me. Anyway, he hosts, uh, he hosts a, a special on, like, a serious radio, like, Spectrum, one of those channels. Uh, when I had a new car, I had like a list of other channels. Hey, you so and so, you might remember me from MTV, but he was like, "Oh, that's what happened to that guy." <laughs> Good for him. Okay. I was worried that he would go. Please remember who I am. I'm still around. Remember me? <laughs> Ask your parents; they probably do. You know, uh, 
the one thing I was going to say is, uh, I think it's weird that, like, Cindy Crawford had House of Style on for years, and this thing was a huge hit. Every time it was on, I was like, no, there's not even a chance I'm going to watch even five seconds of this. I don't, I do not understand the fascination with that show. Yeah. Because, well, you know, models in the 90s were super hot, and they were just, like, you know, just, just trying, try, they're just, you know, doing, doing whatever's current. So, yeah, models are all the rage right now. Let's, uh, what, what, Let's appeal to our fe- our, you know, our female base, and I don't know. If I, I, I suppose it worked. It was on, on for a while. Yeah, yeah. I don't know anybody ever watched this though. It's weird. I guess there's probably some. There's probably people I wouldn't talk to, like the superficial girls in high school. You know, part of yeah. Like, I'd about to say, like, yeah. I wasn't friends with any hot chicks, so maybe that's why. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, nobody watch. I know. Like, who wants to watch this? But the, the, you know, uh, just pull, pull my five friends I have. You know. The 80s, uh, like, I completely miss the 80s, except for watching, like, uh, if I was on vacation, I'd watch it when we're in the hotel room or watching videotapes of, uh, at, of someone else's house or whatever. But it was the 90s. 1991, or no, it was actually early 92 is when I first got cable, and I obsessed over Comedy Central, and if I had already seen it, I'd go over to MTV. It was just those two stations all day long. But I gotta tell you, when November Rain came out, and they showed it, and it was 10 minutes long, I was like, fuck you guys, I'm not gonna watch this every hour. <laughs> That was a huge production too, man. They spent a lot of money on that video. Like that's back when then that's like a that's like a film. It's like a like a filmed video. It's like not like some cheap little you know video, like the video from like uh, video killed the radio star by the Buggles or some of those like or like Gary Newman's uh, what's it called Cars. You know what I mean? Something yeah. really cheap and low budget. It's a great song by the way. Don't don't get me wrong. But yeah, this was like a, this is like a motion picture. Like it's like a three minute you know major motion picture you're watching. There was like, one, holy crap. at the same time, I thought, it's still to this day, I think it's the best music video I've ever seen, but it only got played like 10 times and it disappeared. It was so expensive. I think it was almost as expensive as November Rain was uh, Faith No More, Small Victory. It's so damn good. Yeah, I've ne- ne- never seen that. I'm, I mean, of course, I'm familiar with their, their giant video with the fish flopping at the end. Yeah. Yeah, their second album, no, their third album, Angel Dust, is one of the finest alternative albums of the 90s that no one ever do- talks about. It's never, like, rediscovered. It's amazing. Hmm. Sounds familiar. I think I may have had that CD at, at one point. It has a little, um, like, a seagull on the front or something like that, or uh, I can't remember the kind of bird it is, sounds- but you, you'll see. If you look up their discography, you'll know what I'm talking about. That sounds very familiar, and I think I, think I, I may have actually owned that one, uh, but I've lost so many of them. And, and in the 90s is where uh, the Beastie Boys came back. You know, Paul's Boutique was a huge flop, even though now everybody's rediscovered it and realized how amazing it is. But at the time, well, you know, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was produced by, by the Dust Brothers, man. That, yeah. was like, that was like that was like a masterpiece of playing the sound. Some really great samples. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think most people realize how great it was years later. They, they couldn't appreciate it because it was like over, a lot of that shit was over their heads. And I'm like, what is Because you just wanted to. You were gonna, you thought they were gonna do like another Paul Revere or something? Yeah, another like, party hold it, album. Hold it now. Basically, call it. I hate their first album. I actually think it's kind of like white trash garbage for the most part. There's a couple good songs in there, but I can't stand most of it. And every douchebag I ever met in high school was still listening to that album. I was like, Have you guys heard the last couple? They're really great. No, nah, man, they suck now. I'm like, No, no. <laughs> I mean, you have to let your artists evolve. They can't be they can't be like you know a one trick pony. You know, I mean, like yeah, the, the Beatles are weren't. The Beatles did more than, like, I want to hold your hand, you no know? No shit, yeah. No one said, oh, uh, Sergeant Pepper's is shit. Look at this. Oh, what's, what's his, what's his layering? Oh, yeah, that was, like, like, one of the first bands used, like, eight-track recordings. What's all this other 
ambient sound. This is this is horseshit. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when uh, I first saw um, "Check Your Head," oh uh, no, no. So what you want was the first video off that, and I was like, oh shit, the Beastie Boys are back. This is amazing. And then like you would slowly discover other people had gotten into it, and you're like, oh man, this is a, this is great. They're back. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Then and that was. Uh, that and and like and that helped that helped really jump started their album sales yeah because people were like but you know at that point they really didn't have the crossover success that they they did in the eighties but I think that's that was all right with them you know they they didn't have their uh, their core hip hop audience that they did they, that they did before now they're kind of like kind of like more uh, considered like an alternative band yeah which uh, which is weird the way it happened but you know it's that, that's fine it took that out cause considering that they first started off as a punk band you know I, I guess it's like a well, you see the evolution uh, in Sabotage. Not... You see them come back and, and mix hip-hop mm-hmm. with. And that's one of those guys that really started kickstarting the uh, the hip-hop metal uh, scene, which, oh, God, it sucks so bad. So uh, as much as I love Beastie Boys, I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah. Oh, God, like that uh, that that rap rock from the late 90s. Limp Bizkit. Okay. Nookie. I want you. I want the look of you. A cookie. I don't know. I hate that song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> That, uh, that, those that, yeah, it was the boy of 1999. Yeah, come on. Come on. Get some. <laughs> I gotta say, I remember Janine Garofalo being on TRL saying that, you know, she literally just goes, uh, everything you play now is crap. What happened to the great music you were playing just a few years ago? And Carson Daly just laid it out flat. He goes, yeah, the music was great, but it was the worst ratings we ever had. Between 92 and 98, the ratings were terrible, and then all of a sudden the boy bands came back, you know, and Britney Spears and everything. And all of a sudden, everything just blossomed, and the ratings just exploded again on MTV. Yeah, screaming teenage girls, man. It, well, you see, yeah, that's the thing. You, you know, you're trying to appeal to you know kids with disposable income. You got to uh, appease your uh, the, the advertisers. You know what I mean? And what it comes down to, all it comes down to ad revenue. That's the only reason there's there's shows. The only reason there's content on TV is to you know to, uh, make make ad revenue. Yeah. I remember discovering Fuse TV. Do you remember Fuse? I don't know if it's still around. Fuse? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's uh, still a network that exists. Mm-hmm. Do, do they air original programming now, or do they still air music videos? Uh, they, they do music. Uh, you know, it's, I could be talking my ass. It's been like, forever since I've seen it. But they uh, they play music, and it was like a lot, a lot of like skater rock and like uh, all, all shit. But then they had like some, uh, some, some yeah, some, some of their uh, original programming as well. But it's like a... A lot of like skate and motocross and like extreme sports kind of stuff, as well as music. Oh, okay, yeah, because I remember it was much music, like a Canadian station. It became Fuse, and I really started watching that around 2005, 2006. And that's when they started getting all this. I know people hate pop punk, but I love it. And um, some of some of it's okay. Some of it's some of it's a little tedious. Like I don't know what category Blink 182 is. Yeah, I actually it's, hate it's, Blink I'll tell you that. Something I don't like. It's hard for me to listen to. Yeah. I give it so many chances. I was like, I can't. Yeah, you know, as good as good as good as as Travis Barker is, like I know, I just. Well, I think we've kind of come to the end of this episode. It's not an hour long. I didn't want to stretch it out and just filling it up with nonsense. But um, is there anything else you want to say about this era of MTV? No, nah, man, it just like it, it completely changed, changed my life. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't realize it made me aware of new and cool music besides the garbage I would hear on somebody's boombox or the stuff I was forced to listen to in my mom's car. You know what I mean? So yeah, it gave me a chance to hear something new and fresh. And uh, I wish there was a wish there's a channel like that on TV for that now, but I guess that's what we have YouTube for. Well, yeah, there's Vivo, which is an internet version of MTV where it's all music videos, and, and it's amazing how Weird Al, of all the people to last 
35 years. He's there at the very beginning of MTV, and he's still around making you know huge sales and an impact. Of all the people, Weird Al. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he was he was tailor made for like little video clips, you know, funny, you know, spoof songs, really funny. And people, and a lot, a lot of the videos on YouTube, like my amateurs, are like you know, spoofs and of, uh, of current things. And he was like the originator of that. All the, so many kids doing spoofs of this, this is that, a comedy version of this uh, scenario. And he was. He was one of the forefathers of that. You know, every time you think he's down, he comes back with this album everybody talks about, and you're like, "Well, I guess we're good for another five years of weird." <laughs> you know, it's too weird to quit. He's too weird to be stopped. You cannot <laughs> stop. You cannot stop his weird. Don't even try. Don't even try to contain him. Um, I will say this: the most pivotal music video I think I ever saw on MTV was Dead Milkman, uh, Punk Rock Girl, because it was the Rock strangest girl. thing I saw at the time, and I was like, "This is what MTV is. It's these little guys coming out of nowhere with all this weird creativity on no no budget." Yeah, it's a Philly band filmed on South Street, and they make a lot of Philadelphia references, like on South Street, like Zipperhead is a pop. I don't know if it's still around, but it's been around forever. It's one of those popular punk uh, shops on South Street. It's like, no, we don't have ice, which is like the worst probably sounding Philly accent in the world. But yeah, I was like, oh, shit, man. Like, you know, so I got some of the local references. Like, oh, yeah, I know that is. I'm not allowed to go there, but yeah. All right. So that hits the end of our episode. Thank you, Tony, very much for doing this episode. Um, I don't know what we'll do for the my next pleasure, one, but always, we'll sir. hit you up with one. What's that? I said my pleasure as always, sir. Always a pleasure. And it is the 35th anniversary of MTV this month, so we figured why not end the episode with the very first video they ever played. <laughs>